welcome back to Wax and Gold Podcast. This is episode three. And uh, first off, I'd just like to say rest in peace, Donald Rumsfeld. Yo, fuck Donald Rumsfeld, man. <laughs> I can't... Rest in rest in peace, like, fuck you. Rip, Rotten hell. Rip in pieces. I, I can't disagree with you too much. Uh, you know, we're going to be talking a lot about him today, actually. Mr. Oh, Rumsfeld. Wow. Really? Yeah. It's fucking demon. Oh, I can't I can't wait to yeah to hear your take on on the, on that guy yeah um I had a dream about him last night so well last night okay so Burko just got here ten minutes ago yeah. from Princeton New Jersey right yes yeah it is my it was my first time there I've never been there before I was I was trying to get here to like do this yeah um and then there was a rainstorm and my ride he lives in Princeton so we missed the train. And I ended up staying in Princeton, and like we went out in Princeton, and it's just like there's a there's a there's a I mean it's college. It's a little college. Yeah. It's college. College is cool. Yeah. In the post pandemic, after the pandemic world, college is kind of fun. But there's a there's a very there's an evil there. Really? Well, isn't there's an evil at Princeton, and the college, evil is Rumsfeld. The ghost still, of Rumsfeld haunts that place. Is college still remote now? Like, are people actually? No, going? they're out. Oh wow, they're out, and they really are enjoying it. Good for them, as they should be. Yeah, but there's a there's fucking evil shit happening. It's like a castle in New Jersey where they cook up these people and these you know, damn, um, projects and whatever. You know, Carlucci was his roommate. Who's Carlucci? Carlucci uh, was a department, uh, de- de- another defense secretary who was like personally responsible for killing Patrice Lumumba. Okay. The like leftist uh, leader of the Congo who died like, like the first week of Kennedy in office, he learns that like the CIA killed Lumumba and he's like, oh shit. Uh, so does Princeton have some sort of like algorithm where they just pair the the most evil like they match up roommates by like levels of of sociopathy? I I don't know how when you're selected. I, I don't know. Because I think some people are selected at birth, like if you're like a wasp, like but like a bush. Yeah. But guys like Rumsfeld and Carlucci, Carlucci's Italian. Hmm. Rumsfeld is like German, you know. He's not. He's not a dynasty. He's a climber. Mm. Um. Anyway, we'll talk more about him in the show. Yeah. Uh, we'll so talk more. We'll, we'll talk. We're gonna talk a lot about him actually. So the show today's show, there's a riot going on. Yes. Is the name, is the title. I'm looking and at the album right here. Yeah. So I'm going to be talking about Sly and the Family Stone's 1971 masterpiece, There's a Riot Going On. And Burko's going to be talking all about riots. Riots. Literal, literal riots. Yes. That that's the, the theme world. of that's going to be going through the, the Burko part of the show. Because there's a lot of riots going on. And they're happening in many seasons. They're happening in the fall, they're happening in the winter, they're happening in the summer, and they're happening in the spring. The riots of spring. Riots of the spring. Riot. Yes, which at it's the premiere of Stravinsky's Riot of Spring, there were... There were riots. Yeah. Right? Like People in couldn't the theater. handle it. Yep. And like, it like, didn't they like... It happened in the theater, and then they kind of like roll. I think they like took it out, spread out of the opera house or something? I, I think so. I, gotta, I need to read up on that again, but that's like... Uh, that's the coolest thing I've like a ballet could do to me yeah yeah for real i mean you, yeah it's and it's weird because you listen to the rite of spring today and i mean yeah parts of it are pretty 
intense, but it's not like you know, Rite of Spring goes hard, man. Oh, it does. It does, but I don't. I still think it's weird that it, it like moved a bunch of, you know, if if feet, uh, art like, upper upper crust art art people to yeah when was that right in the streets i was like 1916 i want to say ah, look so it up yeah, yeah already in a fighty mood then i think oh yeah that would have been during the 1913 war. wow okay, okay right pre-war that's interesting yeah it's like they're all it's like they're ready to go yeah rearing to go mm-hmm. all right well today before we talk about rumsfeld i want to just remind everyone of something called the bricks. The brick, the brick, the brick, the brick, the bricks. The brick, the brick, the brick, the brick, the brick. Yeah, yeah, bricks like like bricks of cocaine. Uh, well, you know, there's many meanings there. I think for Redman, you know, Redman's from Newark, so they call that Brick City. Right, right. But the bricks is like an acronym. Oh, yeah. B r i c k. No, there's no K. Oh. No, it's it's B-R-I-C-S. Uh, and it stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Uh, and it was coined by like a Goldman Sachs guy in like 2000. Bricks. 2001. Okay. I think he's like a lord now. Um, basically, oh. he was predicting what would be... The big emerging market economies, the big emerging markets. That's a nice acronym. BRICS. I love Brazil, a good Russia, yeah. India, China, South Africa. These are the big emerging markets for the 21st century. Okay. Emerging markets mean demand, demand. So you're sa- so these this is these are the countries where demand for oil. Demand for everything. Everything. Okay. Right. Demand for everything. I mean, okay. So if this is your first episode listening. I've I've been a bit maybe overqualifying and uh, my basic hypothesis of this whole pandemic. Yeah, so why, I'm just going to be say re- how you really feel. Yeah, just re- so the pandemic is a way to control demand. It is on purpose. It is intentional, and it's done by the same people who brought you the Iraq War, because they're worried about both controlling the supply of oil and resources. That was the Iraq war and going mm-hmm. to wars and mm-hmm. going to the Middle East, controlling supply. Okay. Pandemic is the only way you can control demand, mm-hmm. which is becoming as much, if not more important than supply. Now that we're in this kind of slide down period during and post peak oil. And by the way, this is not just peak oil this is peak, everything mm-hmm. peak metals, peak, uh, natural resources, everything like, like every, like the reason there's climate change is because we put everything that's underground into mm-hmm. the sky. Right. Right. So that's obviously fucking us up with climate change, but it also means we're running out of shit mm. under the ground. The most important being oil because that runs everything else. But also, even if we, even if we like all these, uh, like the IEA, the International Energy Agency is saying, mm-hmm. even if we like today just switch to fucking electric vehicles, there's not enough minerals. Yeah. You know what I mean? We'd have to, we'd have to increase the amount of minerals. Uh, like by 40 times, not 40%, 40 times. Oh, wow. Right. So it's not enough to just cobalt and nickel and, you know, aluminum. It's peak everything. Yeah. And that is all, um, driven by demand and Mm -hmm. the places that are driving the demand are the bricks. Well, the places that didn't exist before, but are ever increasing the demand 
are the BRICS. The, the BRICS. Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. What I'm saying is the BRICS. B-R-I-C-S. Mm -hmm. Right? If you remember earlier this year, we had huge waves in India. That's the I. Yep. Right? They're probably close to about a million deaths by now. They're, I mean, they're Jeez. undercounting. Like They say four, 400,000, but any scientist, data scientist knows it's a million. Sure. At least. Um, Brazil. Yes. That's 525,000. The B. That's the B, right? And of course, where did these variants start, right? The new variants, which, by the way, came out right as the vaccine was announced last December. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, there are new variants in Brazil. Does this include the... In UK and India. The infamous Delta variant? It, it, that's, it comes from India, mm -hmm. right? These are all bricks, okay. you know, plus UK. We'll go into UK later because that, that goes into the A, A versus B thing. But I'm, just, I'm just reminding everyone that the thesis is about it's controlling demand. So you would expect it to be in places where there's, you know, imagine Rumsfeld has a memo and he's reading about these bricks are going to be the emerging markets driving up demand, which means driving up the price of oil. And he writes a fucking asshole Rumsfeld memo and mm -hmm. says well we got to do something about this have you seen his memos like i you were you were telling me about about you were telling me about a like a torture prick. memo yeah, that he torture wrote me and he's such a like a weird like a boring prick about it like yeah. a, like a like a like a dispassionate bean counter almost exactly right? like he writes like there's a torture memo and it's saying like because everything has to be signed but off by him literally yeah and as he when he was defense secretary when right? he was defense sec which he was twice by the way yeah. but the second time is when they go you know yolo well now they're really going yolo but the war on terror was also yolo sure you know guantanamo bay stuff these kids don't even like know about this no but there was like he had to sign off in these torture memos mm -hmm. literally signing off on them and they would say okay we're we're allowing them to put them in a standing do enhanced interrogation techniques by forcing them to stand four hours a day mm -hmm. and rumsfeld writes well i stand eight to ten hours a day and i'm fine why is it limited to four? Dash DR. You know, literally, that's what he writes. A fucking psychopath. Psychopath. Yeah. But like boring psychopath. Yeah. That's Rums the, the, That's the, Princeton. The banality of evil, right? He's the banality of evil, man. Mm -hmm. Okay. So anyway, we got a lot of stuff to talk about. But the story today really begins with something that just came back into the news cycle, which is the Wuhan military games. 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 I love that. That's like how I imagine a. Uh, <laughs> that's how I imagine the games to be. Like, the, like they're just blasting DMX. I don't know. I know they're not, but like it's just such an arena song to me, you know? Yeah, like military, like <laughs> testosterone exploding, like yeah, yeah. But they're athletes. Yeah. They're, by you know when you hear military games, it's oh confusing. yeah, I thought right. Like I thought initially that it, they were like. It was soldiers coming, convening in one place, and do, doing like war games. Well, well, well th that's what's wild about this. But so, it's sports. It's like this is a sporting Olympics, Olympics, Olympics yeah. held in Wuhan on October 18th of, of 2019. 2019. Okay. Um, so, yeah, what I'm saying is there's three things going on all the same week mm -hmm. and the same day. Yeah. Like the same day, wow. which is October 18th, 2019. You've got the Wuhan Military Olympic Games, mm -hmm. athletes competing with each other. You have the Maritime 
military game exercise, which is happening in the South China Sea. That's actual fire, you know. So like like U.S. is flexing their military US prowess. US flexing military prowess and clearly, uh, 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 you know, showing what they're going to do to China mm-hmm. uh, and what they can do to China if, if you know, push comes to shove. Yeah. That's happening the same day in the South China Sea. And a coronavirus pandemic simulation is happening in New York City for mm-hmm. what would happen with a pandemic. And it's run by the same people who did that smallpox simulation right before the anthrax attacks. In 2001. In 2001. Same people running the simulation. All happening wow. the same day. Simulation New York for a coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. Wuhan military games where we know the pandemic's going mm-hmm. to be quite you know, central and these military exercises in the South China Sea all happening the same day, the same week. Like I, you know, I, I'm, you're sort of the way you're wired is like predisposed to, to look for patterns and, and and seeing, you know, no, no, but what I'm saying is like, you know, I'm, I guess I lean towards more of like the, the, the POV of a skeptic, but like, when you t- when you tell me about things like this, yeah. th- you know it does. It seems too perfect to be a coincidence. Right. So I'm this. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm starting to get more on board. With yeah. Once you lie, have a, these things start to you know cluster. But let let's talk about the military games themselves because okay. nobody had talked about this for a while. Yeah. And then suddenly, um, about two weeks ago, June twenty third, Josh Rogan at the Washington Post writes. Well, really, he's he's covering the fact that these Republican Congress people mm-hmm. are asking the military, writing to the military, writing to the Secretary of Defense that they want to investigate what happened at the Wuhan military games because people came back sick with mm-hmm. with COVID like symptoms. Um, France, Germany, Italy and Luxembourg all had athletes claiming that they were sick with something that resembled COVID. Wow. Nobody was tested. Uh, the U.S. U.S. soldiers said that they were sick and they were not tested. I mean, that that time they didn't even have testing. Like you're saying, you're thinking that this happened in October later. I mean, they take blood from right. them all the time. You could go back, or, or you could just look and see if they have antibodies. Antibodies, right, right. If you really want to find when this sure. started, right? I just can't believe this wasn't uh, that this wasn't um, more publicized earlier or hmm. you yes, know it I is mean, you, said, you said chi- you said china mentioned it in in like march 2020 we'll, we'll get to that I'll, okay I, yeah, yeah the chronology Sorry, is go, very important yeah go ahead so uh, but i just want to tell you what we're what we're hearing now about something that happened in october 2019 mm-hmm. now we're it's like it's you know it's like fu- now you fucking tell us right mm-hmm. so now canada after the the the, the republicans said we want to look into this the you know canadian uh, soldiers anonymous canadian Military sources say that they had 60 athletes at the military games who were put in isolation right after on their no way, way back to Canada. They were coughing. They they say that they felt like they had COVID and they even went to the Canadian military, you know, weeks later when COVID becomes mm-hmm. a thing. And they get this like weird letter from them saying, uh, no, you didn't have COVID. Mm. Um, you know. They call it a slap in the face. It comes from the Canadian Surgeon General. Let me read you a quote from this from this article about the Canadian soldiers. Okay. 
This week, lawmakers in the United States called for an investigation into whether the October 2019 Military World Games in Wuhan, China was a COVID-19 super spreader event and whether officials should have known something was amiss given that the city seemed unusually empty and was described by some participants as a, quote, ghost town. Canada's parliament should do the same, according to some Canadian Armed Forces members who participated in the games and came back with COVID-like symptoms that military officials seemingly ignored. Canada sent around 180 military athletes and support personnel to the games out of a total of 9,000 athletes from 100 countries. The games were held in October, but China did not disclose the virus to the world until the end of December. Two Canadian military sources who asked for anonymity because they are currently serving in the Canadian Armed Forces said the military bureaucracy ignored their symptoms and also suggested China was covering up an outbreak months before it admitted COVID existed. Quote, this was a city of 15 million people that was in lockdown at that time. Woof said a source who participated in the games. It was, quote, it was strange, but we were told this was to make it easy for the game's participants <laughs> to get around. <laughs> you, wow, you guys can't see this, but I'm very, giving uh, Archie like a look. Like That's like, very courteous of them. Yeah. He said he got, quote, very sick 12 days after we arrived with fever, chills, vomiting, insomnia. On our flight to come home at the end of October, 60 Canadian athletes on the flight were put in isolation at the back of the plane for the 12-hour flight. We were sick with symptoms ranging from coughs to diarrhea and in between. Jesus. After returning to Canada, the source said family members became ill and his symptoms worsened, including fatigue, nosebleeds, fever, and pain when he breathed. So, he, wait, family, they were spreading it to their, to their families? Yes, they're spreading it. Jesus Christ. This is a super spreader event. Yeah. He went to a military doctor. Quote, I was tested for various issues, but never for anything respiratory, he said. Quote, a few weeks later, I offered to take an antibody test, but was ignored many american participants got sick with covid-like symptoms as well according to the washington post i just mentioned mm -hmm. according to the washington post u.s military leaders at the time either dismissed the idea out of hand or weren't aware of it quote given unanswered questions surrounding the origins of the pandemic and from information involving the health of service members who participated in the 2019 games could provide key evidence in understanding when covid-19 first emerged said Representative Mike Gallagher and calling for the investigation. A second Canadian military source who spoke to the National Post said, quote, one quarter of us got sick there, and when we returned, some were bedridden for weeks. This made us potential vectors for the virus. Mm. The military did nothing. I was sick, and others were too, with Wuhan symptoms. I was eventually given a swab test, which measures only recent exposure and told to carry on. Then, on January 22, 2020, the Canadians who participated in the Wuhan Games received a letter from the Surgeon General saying it was, quote, not aware of any COVID-19 among participants and that, quote, your individual risk of having been exposed to 2019 NCOV during temporary duty in Wuhan City is negligible. How did they know, asked the Canadian Forces officer. I would have thought the intelligence or medical intelligence community would have tested and followed up on this, but this did not happen. Athletes were coming back sick from countries with ongoing symptoms. In Europe, athletes were tested, and French, Italian, and six Spaniards returned and were positively identified in 2019 to 2020 as having the virus. The Post contacted the Surgeon General's office, uh, and the Canadians said, we're not aware of uh, any members getting sick, blah, 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 blah. 
Like this is this is huge. This is I huge. I can't believe this is only. This is a super spreader event involving military personnel from every military in the world happening in Wuhan the last week of October. Mm-hmm. And one of the sources described the Surgeon General's letter as quote a slap in the face and said it did quote zero follow up with any of us since end quote. He added that now it is too late for an antibody test to determine whether they had COVID or not at the time because they have now been fully vaccinated. I think this is worth an inquiry, he said. Parliament must determine what, if anything, the armed forces as well as the Public Health Agency of Canada did to protect these people or the public. This would also shed light on the extent of China's cover-up of the origins of COVID-19 and the date of the disease's inception. Inception. So, inception. 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 Um, so that's a Canadian article following up the Washington Post article talking about the Republican representatives asking the military what the fuck happened at the Wuhan military games because it is an ideal <laughs> super spreader event, you know? Yeah. I mean, I can't even, I can't imagine something better because, no. because the, they're athletes, right? So they're going to survive. Yeah. They're going to survive. They're going to carry it back to their families. They're going all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, Alina Chan, who I have my own disagreements with, but I also think she hits the mark sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, she says, look, they take blood constantly from these soldiers yeah. and they store it for exactly these kinds of things. I mean, the military is very concerned about like epidemics in mm-hmm. bef- even before COVID. Right. Sure. They, they're concerned. Like, so they're constantly drawing blood and, you know, I mean, the, the U.S. military is organized. Yeah. And they care. They, they keep track of things. Um, and when they don't keep track of things, when they say they've lost stuff, you should be a little Super suspicious. suspicious yeah. Right. Um, so they, these soldiers are asking to be tested in America and Canada. Both militaries are telling them, eh, we're, we're no big fine. Deal. Yeah. No big deal. You were just at the Wuhan military <laughs> game sick. And, uh, but, you know, it didn't exist yet. Well, clearly it did. Mm-hmm. And we know it did because these new genetic studies are coming out, which I can actually show like where it where not exactly where but sort of where and 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 more importantly when because they when they, the virus when the virus emer- came to be okay like there's a kind of progenitor atom that they can with with some uh, precision trace mm-hmm. to like a time okay and this um this new paper came out since the last time we did a uh, show mm-hmm. um and it became a big story for a few days it was uh, uh written by jesse bloom and he said that he found all this data that china had deleted you mm-hmm. know and that was the big headline yeah. well it's a little complicated uh it was taken down from some database okay but, it, but the data was also based on a chinese paper that was published and was totally public mm. so it's not like he un he didn't unearth something that was totally destroyed and hidden he just found that it's just evidence or, or he found that some data that. was taken off, but then he was able to f- find the data again because it's mm-hmm. also published. Yeah, it was obfuscated a bit, but also published. And, mm-hmm. and from this data, he shows, well, one, someone's trying to hide something. And two, we can definitely push the beginning of the pandemic before the seafood market. Okay. Which, by the way, are seafood markets. This is really important. And when and when did this seafood market spreading Seafood happen? markets is December 2019. Okay. Now, his paper is saying it's definitely spreading in Wuhan before December 19. 
and he also this is not really his paper, right. but and you're saying they were already locked down, and well, in that's what October, this Canadian guy says. He says that the when they went to games. the yeah. to the for the games that it was a ghost town. Everyone was locked down. Hmm. Just to make it easier for them to well, that's navigate. But and they all come back sick. Yeah. Okay. So these genetic studies, right? Looking at the virus. Uh huh. Now, now one peculiar thing. There's a, there was a few mysteries of the virus. One was uh. Why did it spread to first world and not third world? Well, I've told you my theory, which is, you know, cold chain capacity. Another mystery was also that the first people sick at the seafood market in December 2019 had a version of the virus that was more advanced than other people who were found sick in China and in other countries. Mm. Like they had a newer version despite being the first i'm doing a quote marks the first yeah. people so it, it uh, implying that it had already right that it's already spreading that and they're yeah. not getting the first version they're getting the second version okay right which would also kind of match up with cold but either whatever your theory is yeah the, the this is this is one of the conventional mysteries or, so, sorry this is um I'm, I'm trying to discern again between burko's theories and and mm-hmm. What the world, you know, what the world is trying to figure out. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's a mystery that has begged the question, why did the virus, why was the virus more advanced at the seafood market than other samples found elsewhere? Mm-hmm. And Jesse Bloom, the scientist who's uh, recovered this data, says, well, clearly I can show that it was spreading earlier. Yes. And so the seafood market is pretty much definitively like the consensus is now pretty much definitive that the seafood market was not the outbreak, mm. not the initial outbreak. Okay. It was an outbreak. Yes. The first to and be it, widely, uh, widely publicized. publicized yeah. Right. I would call it opening night. That's Burko's theory. Uh, I would okay. call December 2019 opening night. So these, these other opening is, night follows. <laughs> it follows the previews. It follows the previews. Mm-hmm. Previews for the critics, the dress right. rehearsals. Right. Yes. So there's evidence of, uh, you know, there's this Barcelona wastewater study that sh- that found it in March 12th. To me, that's a rehearsal of some kind. Mm-hmm. That's just my <clears throat> idea about it. Yeah. But it was never followed up on. Then there's this Wuhan military games. Now, here's what's interesting about the timing. Jesse Bloom. So he got all the, you know, anything that's anti-China gets a lot of coverage in our, in our uh, Western setting. Yes. So everyone's, so the headline for his paper was uh, scientists discovers Chinese uh, deleted the data. They're hiding stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's part of his story. Okay. But the papers that he is basing his paper on are in some ways more significant. And if you go to like Reuters, mm-hmm. they actually realize that what the real headline is, which is that his papers confirm what the other papers have shown, which is that they can date the progenitor of the of the virus internationally mm-hmm. not just in china but internationally to some kind of super spreader event at the end of october 2019 okay that's what mr bloom's paper confirms and it's mm-hmm. based on mr kumar's paper mm-hmm. so mr kumar from another <laughs> country <laughs> from what another country well i don't oh what this i don't name know what country he's from but but my point is the paper that got a lot of press yeah. is based on another paper that you didn't really hear much about. 
which has already basically timed the virus to the end of October and timed it as in say and, and part of his paper says, you know, we're pushing it to this date because we included international mm-hmm. stuff that nobody else is including. Right. So he's saying it's spread internationally from an international super spreader event at the end of October. Okay. Exactly when the Wuhan military games are. Got it. So the genetic studies show this is the right time. Mm-hmm. Common sense shows you it's the right place. Yes. The athletes are coming home sick mm-hmm. and this and their army because the, they're military personnel. They're superior, you know, the, the, the bureaucracy is saying NBD, no big deal. And they're not testing them. Mm. They're asking to be tested. And, you know, the, the Canadian soldier says it felt like a slap in the face. Yeah, shady as hell. Shady as hell, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Now, I want to um, backtrack a little bit before this. Okay. Which is, there's something big happening in the world at this time. Nobody knows about COVID yet, right? Yes. So, the next month after October, now you could say, well, maybe they didn't know. Maybe they didn't know. There's no such thing as COVID yet. Maybe it's just a coincidence. Okay. Well, we do know that they were sending secret bulletins. By they, I mean the U.S. Department of Defense Mm -hmm. under Trump was sending secret bulletins, as in secret, like we didn't hear about it. Yeah people of the world they were sending it to nato and israel saying something has happened and something's about to happen you know i mean that's just the very nature of a pandemic right yeah saying a pandemic is emerging in november 2019 the month after the wuhan military games and the month before the seafood went on market which i call opening night okay is this chronology making sense yeah well so they so then they definitely knew uh, well, they know something's they know happening. Something's happening. But they're not testing their own soldiers. I mean, like, okay, yeah, if this is crazy. look, if this is a leak, you're mm-hmm. telling me. Remember that meme of like the kid, like the, <laughs> he's like that kid who's like, you're telling me, yeah, in like a refugee camp. Or something. Oh yeah, yeah. The skeptical. Uh, the skeptical. Skeptical. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um. Skeptical refugee boy. Exactly. So, all right, all right. Let's say it is a leak. You're telling me that um, not just the U.S. Army, but every army in the world is sending military personnel into the outbreak of a leak on the same day that they're running a pandemic simulation for what would happen if such a leak occurred. A coronavirus. A coronavirus simulation. simulation. Yeah. On that day, the same day as they're sending their soldiers into the outbreak. I'm, that's not yeah. believable to me that they don't know what's going on. And then it strains the sold, credulity. It's strange. That's a great phrase of yours. Yeah, I say that too much, but no, it's good. Strange cr- like credulity. It. And then we know that they're telling people there is a pandemic because they're sending these bulletins to NATO and Israel. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then the opening night thing. Ha- now here's the, okay. Here's where things get kind of. I, I want to put this in context. Okay. So. Um, I feel like we have the chronology down, right? There's yeah, Wuhan military games in October. Mm-hmm. They send these bulletins out in November. We don't hear about them. Mm-hmm. And then opening night is Huanan Seafood Markets. Markets, plural. In which December. is important. Yeah. Because, because markets, to me, suggests is more of an indicator of cold chain. Because that means it's not just happening at one market. Right. Frozen that food that is contaminated with COVID right. is 
making its way to multiple markets. Right. If the people are bringing the virus to the market, it would make sense for it to be one market, right? Like yeah. one event. Right. But if it's the food bringing it to the people, it would make sense for it to be at markets, which is what the WHO report shows. Yes. It also shows that the first vendors, the very, because it's not just, you know, you have to look at who got it first, right? Mm -hmm. That's the point of contract tracing. The first vendors are all seafood cold chain market vendors. Mm -hmm. All of them, the first ones, the vendors. And if you look at the WHO report, the annex, mm -hmm. annex F. Look at annex F or just the just the report, just open it, just A read it. Axel F. There is a map. They draw they they meticulously draw out this market and there's like a cold part of the market, like mm -hmm. any market you go to, right? Yeah. And that's where all the people, are, the infected people are from, the cold chain part of the market. All right. So, so, okay. But that's opening night. Yes. I'm saying that also something happened at these military games they haven't been telling us about. Mm -hmm. And suddenly Clearly. they bring up, bring it up now. Now you tell us. Hmm. Okay. All right. So you're right. going to talk about... The uh, context. Context, context, context. Yes. Riots, though, right? Right. We're talk about riots at some point. I we I do have to talk about riots. Yeah. Um, there's two major world events happening at this time. In late 2019. In late 2019. Okay. One is major worldwide riots, all over the world. Do you remember this? No. I you don't, don't remember this. You said though that this is not not the U.S. though, right? This is everywhere except America. <laughs> exactly. So that's why I don't know. Everywhere except America. Maybe I vaguely remember. Please refresh my memory. Um, Sudan. India. The price of onions went up. In Brazil, it was a cutback in funding they for school textbooks. They were writing over onions? Yes. In Lebanon, attacks on WhatsApp. In Chile, a hike in the subway fares. In Iran, a four-cent increase on a liter of gas. Wow. Um, Algeria, Bolivia, Iraq, Lebanon, Sudan. Like dictators were overthrown there. So people were okay, Ecuador, so, so Egypt, were Georgia, like, Haiti, Peru, Poland, Russia, Zimbabwe, China, Chile, France. What the? Fuck? So people were getting price gouged around the world, and they were just fed up. So there were there were pro look these protests have been building for about a year. Yeah. If you remember the yellow vests that started in 2018. Okay. But I they're, don't. They're, but okay. <laughs> All right. So the yellow vests started 2018. That was against a um a kind of a fuel. Um, he was basically t Macron. Basically, wanted to say, uh, oh. "Let's be environmental." So you're going to pay more for fuel now. I do remember a lot of big right. riots in France, and then they t they put on their because they have these yellow vests they have to like keep in their car mm -hmm. as like a regulation. Okay, like if their car breaks down, so they all put on their yellow vests and they went to Paris. And these were like people from out. They were kind of the MAGA people. Uh, okay. well, it was a mix, sort of. And it was All the right. biggest protest, like why? right, right wing French people, sort of right wing, but also just just normal people are just fed up because what he's doing is squeezing from the bottom. Um, that's what's happening here. That starts in 2018. All right, so there's these riots building all year, and it's basically everyone is getting squeezed from the bottom, like mm -hmm. everyone's getting fucked yeah. by the one percent and the government. You know, whether it's a tax on this or a price increase on this, and they're fed up. You know, whether you're paying, whether you're getting fucked on your taxes or on your rent. Or at the grocery store, like you're getting squeezed. Yeah. It's clear you're getting squeezed, and you don't like it. Mm -hmm. And it's happening to everyone, all over the world. That's why there's protests all over the world, and they're and building. It, and is that why? And, and are they are are people in different countries like seeing? Yes, a people, of course. A riot in other countries, and they're copying and they're, their tactics. Remember, uh, like okay. the Catalonian people copied, because it's the internet, right? They can yeah. see what these Hong Kong 
cats are doing and right. are like, oh, that's smart. Let's do that. Right? Okay. Right. So it's building on its own. That's exciting. It's, it is exciting. It's very cool. This was the biggest worldwide protest since 1989 and 1968. Damn. It was 2019. But then there was a catalyzing event. Okay. That nobody has really connected to this. So, so what I'm saying is like, I know sometimes I sound like, you know, I'm saying all events are controlled by, I'm not saying that. Mm-hmm. I, I want to make clear my framework. I, I see the world as a combination of chaos and control. Okay. In many different permutations. And it's never totally one or the other. Uh-huh. I think it's very naive to think there's no control. There's always a by chance. Control, I mean, the attempt at control, you know, like right. power exists and they, you know, part of the chaos is the power trying to yeah, try things out. That well, doesn't world, mean they control everything. The world's so complex the that complex, no matter how chaotic. much control a, a, an entity has over things, there's always going to be something right. unexpected Absolutely. coming up. Absolutely. So the world to me that. is a always a permutation. All world events and all everything is yeah. a combination of chaos and, you know, like, like let's be real. Like there are... People looking at the chaos who have more power than other people. Yeah. Right. We're not all <laughs> equal here. Right. Okay. So something happened as these riots are building on their own, mm-hmm. you know, for their own endogenous reasons. Something yeah. happens in September 2019. Yes. On t- uh, September 14th, 2019, cruise missiles and drones hit this uh, oil processing facility at ABCAC which is the biggest oil processing facility in the world. In Saudi Arabia. In Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Aramco, it's the Saudi Arabian oil companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Aramco. Yeah. So it means, uh, Aramco actually means the Arab American oil company because uh-huh. it used to be uh, owned by the Rockefellers. Now it's a national company, but national really means owned by the Saudi family. Okay. But this is the biggest refinery in the world. And on this day, these fucking missiles and drones um, Managed to make it through the most highly concentrated and sophisticated and advanced array of air defense that exists in the world. Yeah. Well, okay. And make it through. Who, and they take out these refineries and 5% of the world's oil production is, for the world is taken out in one fell swoop that day. Okay. So who did that? Well, that was the question at the time because the Houthis in Yemen claimed it, but the Houthis are really far. So if you picture on a map, the Abkak faci- the oil in Saudi Arabia is on the east side. That's why the Persian Gulf is so important. Okay. So so Qatar, Saudi, Iran, and UAE—they all are in the same. Um, the east uh, east yeah, side. Yeah, they're all on that. the Persian Gulf. That's where I, I guess a bunch of dinosaurs died there or something. But <laughs> there's something about that spot. Kuwait, Iraq—it's all right there. Okay. On the east side. Um, what's interesting is the west side of Saudi Arabia is historically more. Like, that's where all the history happens, like Mecca and mm. Muhammad and stuff like that. That's yeah. not where the oil is. Okay. Oil is on the east side. Uh. So the east side is close to Iraq. It's close to Kuwait. It's close to Iran. So it's not close to Yemen. So the Yemenis claim they did it, but really they did a, an investigation at the UN, and it shows it came from southern Iraq and Iran. Cruise missiles and drones like met up like birds in the sky and flew over Kuwait, by the way. Over two countries. Uh-huh. Undetected? I guess. Or un- allowed, well, I'm asking uh, you. Or allowed to pass? I don't know. Of, well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Look, uh-huh. I'm not saying that the uh, military industrial complex of America is infallible. Mm-hmm. They've been trying to make this F-35 plane work for like years and it yeah. just doesn't fly. But that's a that's one plane. It's yeah. a very complicated thing. What we're talking about here is something like January 6th or 9-11. We're talking about 
a huge amount, like so many systems have to fail mm-hmm. and not detect this yeah. for this to happen. Right. Like January 6th is like, if you put up a fence, you could have prevented that. Mm-hmm. This is like, there's a fence there that, that, that they pay billions of dollars for. Mm-hmm. The most sophisticated of its kind. This is the highest concentration of air defense radar in the world. Just to, pre- just to prevent this from happening, right? Because this is, this is the oil of the world yeah. is coming out of this, this facility. And, and b- besides, the, the, the military industrial guys, like this is how they take that oil money and you know, they're selling this shit to them because they, they'll pay. Um, these missiles and drones meet up like birds in the sky over a few different countries in the most, like, there's more eyes on this region than you could possibly yeah. imagine. This is not like a, it's not like Antarctica or something. No, no. this is like, and all the air defense radar, an imp- impenetra- all the missile defense, impenetrable is, fortress, basically. It's supposed to be. Allegedly. It's supposed to prevent this Aust- from happening, Aust- and it just goes through. Yeah, weird. And takes out five <laughs> percent of the world's oil, and the Saudis go like, "What the fuck?" And they go, "Yo," and the Houthis take credit for it. Now the Houthis are with Iran, so so what most people said is okay. Iran is letting the Houthis take credit for it, so that they don't they they like other people to do their dirty work, uh-huh. or take credit for their dirty work rather, yeah. so that they don't get blamed. I'm not saying that Iran didn't do it. I think Iran did do it, and okay. these uh, Iraqi militias they laundered their involvement through by well letting, they let these guys take credit so that the they Houthis go. Oh, take what are we? Who knows? Who yeah. knows who did it? Okay. But the real question is how did it make it through all this military defense radar? Yeah. A bunch of different systems. Right. Every, yeah, a bunch Not of just one, but a bunch. Right. And you could say, oh, drones are small. Well, it's drones and missiles. Okay. So They're how- all designed to prevent this from happening. Okay. So what's the point? Yeah. The point is after this happens, this 5% increase. Sorry. 5% of the world's oil. 5% of the world's oil was taken off. There was a significant in, uh, spike in the price of oil. Mm-hmm. You know, later, you know, then they do these production. Uh, OPEC can basically bring it down through their through their um, production cuts or whatever. Okay. But if you take out 5% of the world's oil, you're going to see a spike. Sure. And sure enough, there was a spike. And a spike in oil means a spike in everything. Mm. A spike in food. Right. A spike in metals. A spike in everything. And then what happened to these protests that are already building? It's already a fire, you know, a, um, I would say a medium-sized fire. Mm-hmm. It fucking explodes it throws gasoline on it it, it throws Those gasoline <laughs> on the fire by taking out the gasoline yeah and I've been putting on fire with gasoline and that's you know and I'm not sure why nobody connected this at the time but you know like, of course, I'm saying the chaos is already yeah, happening. All, yeah. It's, you know, the force is already happening. But this um, poke certainly seemed to make the protests uh, explode Yeah, all over the world in September and October 2019. Hmm. That's what's happening. Okay. that's And that's a month before the military games. That is a month before the military games. Okay. Now, something else is happening. All right. Um. Um, well, there's a few things that one is the protests, yeah. which overlap with Middle East stuff, because many of the protests are actually in um, Iran, Iraq and Lebanon, which are countries that Iran is in charge of. Mm-hmm. So those protests are actually to America's liking. Right. Yeah. 
Um, we'll go back into that a little bit later. Um, so the, the protests, there's protests, there's Middle East stuff, which is, you know, protests mixed with geopolitics. Okay. But then there's also U.S. and China. Now, whenever you put those two together in a sentence, you assume it's some kind of... Well, they're like, at uh, yeah, I assume they're assume at, they'll odds. Be at odds with each other, right? right? Because that's what we got used to during the Trump administration as a whole, and even right. continuing now into Biden. Well, now that the Soviet Union's not a an issue, I mean, of course, there's there's Russia, but right. I feel like China has sort of supplanted become the Soviet the Union as boogeyman. our new arch nemesis, especially yeah. with the pandemic. Yeah, right. But even before, right? Right. Even when Trump was running for president, it was China, oh, China, 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 yeah. China. Okay, but but. During these four months, October 2019, November 2019, December 2019, and January 2020, January 2020, those four months, which um, obviously are when the pandemic is starting, and nobody's saying peep about the Wuhan military games, Mm -hmm. are we, if you look back at that time, which I've done recently. Yeah. You will see that U.S.-China relations are oddly quiet and pacific. By pacific, I mean chill. Pas- pacified. Pacified, but pacified. like eerily. Yeah. yeah. Like eerily quiet. It's too quiet. It's too quiet. Yeah. And I'm not just saying like, oh, there's nothing there. Like, I, like Trump will say things like, it's a love fest. He'll say, oh, we used to uh, have a lot of disagreements. Now it's a love fest. He says that about one week before the Wuhan military games. And the reason is um, that you're hearing about this is because they're mm-hmm. wrapping up the trade deal. You know, there was this trade war that he basically started when he came into office. And for those four months, they're wrapping it up and everything's just fine. Everything's just fine. Even when the pandemic starts in like opening night, mm-hmm. January, Trump says China's doing a great job. China's doing a great job. And nobody mentions the Wuhan military games and nobody wow. mentions the lab. Hmm. nobody mentions there's a lab there. There's like one Daily Mail article. Yeah. Okay, for these four... These, I'm saying these four me, months are... You're taking are, me back. I had forgotten that, tr- that, that Trump that, was... Right? Yeah. Was, exactly. <laughs> what I'm saying is like we're, we're so used to the hurricane of U.S.-China relations mm-hmm. being so acrimonious. Yeah. Those first four months, when it's starting, are like an eye of the storm. Eye of the storm. That's what it was. Eye of the storm. Eye of the storm hurricane metaphor eye of the storm that's what it was in eye u.s sky china relations now the world it's hard to see the eye of the storm and it was hard to even see it at the time because the world is so fucking topsy-turvy mm-hmm. not only is donald trump president and there's this like middle east stuff going on with Soleimani. there's these worldwide protests like on a ma- okay let me read you what the new yorker wrote in december 2019 before they knew you know we assume before they <laughs> Before any, before the world knew that coronavirus was a thing, yeah. Keep in mind, the U.S. military has already sent bulletins to Israel, and NATO, that it's a thing, and they were running a simulation for it. But the yeah. world doesn't know it's a thing, right? right? So, New Yorker, I think it's Robin Wright writes this in December 2019. Robin Wright Penn? No, the actress. <laughs> I don't think so. He's shady as hell, though. Sean Penn. Yo, one time at the beginning of the pandemic, uh-huh. I saw this weird interview with him. Where he like he looks like he's, it's so fucking weird. He keeps saying that we need to give the military command and control of the pandemic. He's like wearing all black. He looks terrified. 
it, it looks like he's surrounded by like military goons that you can't see or something. Yeah, and and he did that. And like, Anderson Cooper's like, "Are you okay?" Yeah. <laughs> and remember, remember when he went and like interviewed El Chapo? Yeah, and the CIA used the interview to track him down. Yeah. Did you know that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. So yeah, we can go down the Sean Penn rabbit we'll hole. We'll go down that, that some other time. Yeah. All right. So, Eye of the Storm. <laughs> eye of the Storm. Eye in it's the hard sky. to see the Eye of the Storm because there's so much other storms happening. Yeah. But the U.S.-China relations are tr- pacified during these four months. Okay. Okay. Everything's chill. But everything else is very topsy-turvy. Yes. Like stuff in the Middle East, mm-hmm. geopolitical stuff, Soleimani's getting killed, maybe there's World War Three. But before that, in December 2019, the big story in the world is not coronavirus, because people don't know about it mm-hmm. yet. The big story in the world is the protest. So let me read you what Robin Wright at The New Yorker wrote. Okay. December 2019. When historians look back at 2019, the story of the year will not be the turmoil surrounding Donald Trump. It will instead be the tsunami of protests that swept across six continents and engulfed both liberal democracies and ruthless autocracies. Throughout the year, movements have emerged overnight, out of nowhere, unleashing public fury on a global scale. M-Dash, from Paris and La Paz to Prague and Port-au-Prince, Beirut to Bogota and Berlin, Catalonia to Cairo, and in Hong Kong, Harare, Santiago, Sydney, Seoul, Quito? Quito. Quito, uh, Jakarta, Tehran, Algiers, Baghdad, Budapest, London, New Delhi, Manila, and even Moscow. Wow. Taken together, the protests reflect... Paris, London, (laughs) Moscow, Tokyo, (laughs) Milan, Milan. (laughs) Topeka. Yeah. Uh, taken to, okay, she finishes. Taken together, the protests reflect unprecedented political mobilization. The global consequences dwarf the turmoil of the Trump year and his rippling impacts beyond America's borders. Hmm. So that's the story. Like, everyone's like, holy shit, yeah. these protests are huge. And they're happening everywhere. What protests? You don't even remember them, do you? No. I mean, maybe if I lived in one of those other countries. Well, you know what Sherlock's Or was more plugged pro- into international affairs. I don't know. But I think you're right. I mean, I'm, I think I'm uh, representative of most. Well, a pandemic happened right after. Yeah, right? yeah, right. It's it makes sense that 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 would be memory hold. And you know, it's kind of hard to have a big protest when um, everyone's the government is telling you to stay in your house. Yeah. Well, you would think so. Well, then then the new riots come. The yes. riots of summer, winter, and spring. Right now we're on the riots of fall. Okay. Okay. So let's recap. There's, there are these protests building on their own yes. for their own endogenous reasons and for larger forces about, you know, like fucking capitalism, basically. Sure. Austerity. Yes. Everyone's shit is they're squeezing from the bottom everywhere. Mm-hmm. Shit is too expensive. Yeah. And they're squeezing the bottom. They're not squeezing the top. No. The 99 percent are getting squeezed. And then this fucking Aramco attacks happens. There's a spike in oil. And all of a sudden these. You know, simmering protests or burning protests, they explode. Throw fuel on the fire. Fuel on the fire, October 2019. Okay. At the same time, Trump and China, or sorry, the U.S. and China, are putting together their trade deal. Mm -hmm. They're finishing their trade deal. They're ironing it out. And Trump announces on October 15th that it's it's now a love fest. Mm -hmm. And they become very, very... Tensions tensions subside mm-hmm. for the next four months yes 
until a week after he says that there's the Wuhan military games on October oh, right. 18th. Yes. Same day as the pandemic simulation in New York. Mm-hmm. Same week as the maritime games in the South China Sea. Right. Which, if you're China, are pretty threatening. I okay. just want to put that out there. That's interesting because I always see I see that in the news. You know, there's like yeah, military it's just like cruelty, exercise. right? Well, it just seems silly to me, yeah, honestly. It's like, it's like okay. We're you playing know, at war. Right. Well, we're. And that's but good. you're saying they're actually. Inti- China's actually intimidated by Well, that, they are meant to saying. be intimidating. Okay. I mean, you're practicing for right. for the country. that I mean, they're doing it right in China's front yard. Yeah. Like next to them. Okay. Because I've actually... So looked, these, are taken, these are taken seriously. seriously. Okay. They're, and they're doing it with other countries, you know. And they're doing it right in front of them. I yeah. mean, I, I looked at where they did this on a map. There's mm-hmm. something called the Spratly Islands. China's actually going out to South China Sea and, and actually building islands. Yeah. Um, and this is the main main zone of contestation between America and China. Right, China I know Sea. there's a lot of dispute. It's kind of like disputed. Yeah, waters, like are these right? islands? Are they rocks? Like clearly, you're just making islands just to be here. Yeah. But China's like, yo, well, like, why don't you go be where, like, this is? It would be as if China did maritime exercise in the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. That would be like kind Gulf, of strange to us. Gulf right? of Mexico or something. Or something like that. Yeah. It's right on their front yard, right. and it's happening right during these Wuhan military games, which is happening at the same time as the pandemic simulation. And it's and we know this is the time that the virus is beginning, mm-hmm. and athletes are getting sick. So it seems like a pretty it, it seems pretty fucking obvious that some kind of outbreak is happening. Yeah. Then they send these messages. The U.S. military they don't tell anyone else, but they tell NATO in November. In November to Israel and NATO, saying a pandemic is starting. Yeah. December opening night, Huanan Seafood Markets, first time people hear the words COVID-19 I think is like basically New Year's Eve New Year's Day mm-hmm. yeah. now it's 2020 yes happy new year happy new year Trump has been impeached by one house but not by the Senate these worldwide protests have happened it's now January 3rd I think when Soleimani is assassinated and everyone is on the edge of their seat for one week thinking World War Three might start yeah so this is America being very American right. really fucking flexing Fuck yeah. right but US and China relations we're okay we're in the eye of the storm. Okay. Right? And then uh, the trade deal is finalized. And Trump, now the pandemic is a, going from epidemic to pandemic potential. Yes. Right? What is this COVID-19? Mm-hmm. Well, SARS seemed to stay over there. So maybe SARS-2 will be okay, too. Mm-hmm. Like, we didn't take it seriously yet, right? No. It's something that's happening Not really in until, Mar- yeah, like maybe late February, early late March. Late February, March. Yeah. Right. Now, we started off the show with Donald Rumsfeld. Yes. Well, turns out that Rummy. Donald Rumsfeld, um, you know, he was sort of a rival of Bush. So during the Reagan years, he was actually kind of pushed out of oh, the, administra- the Reagan administration and the Bush administration. Of H.W. Bush. H.W. Bush. Okay. Now, what, what these guys do is they like to call Poppy Bush. Poppy. Poppy and Rumsfeld were enemies. They're okay. both part of Team B, which I'll talk more about next week. Yes. Um, okay. So um, it's January 2020. 2020. Everyone's on the edge of their seat for World War Three, maybe with Iran. Yes. But relations between U.S. and China are chill. And in fact, Trump even says China's doing a great job with, with, the, the, with the epidemic, epidemic which yeah. has not become a pandemic. Right. But maybe it has pandemic potential. Right. But at this point, it was mostly, as far as we knew, was contained in as China. Far, as normal people, we thought, oh, yeah. right, it's another SARS. Yes. Well, the last SARS was over there. Mm-hmm. Now, inside the administration, we now know they're like people freaking out. Yeah. Um, 
And keep in mind, by the way, that John Bolton, who's by this time out of the administration, he's the one who axed the pandemic office of the NSC. Okay. Right. Now, there's a company called Gilead. We start off the show by talking about Gilead. Donald. Is that spelled? Is that with a G? It's with a G. Okay. I-L-E-A-D. Gilead. It is Gilead. a big pharmaceutical company. Okay. And it was the chairman of this company. Yes. Is it? He died this week. Barack Obama? No. no. <laughs> Donald <laughs> Rumsfeld. I, yeah, right. Donald Rumsfeld was the chairman of Gilead. <laughs> He's been the chairman of a lot of uh, a few pharmaceutical companies, actually. Really? Yes, he was in the Reagan in, during the Reagan administration. He was kind of like pushed out a little bit. We'll talk Jeez. more about. I mean, that's what we'll these talk guys more do. More about B right? internal dynamics later. Yeah, these guys hold like high level cabinet positions, and then like they they just kind of fuck off to the like to the private sector for right. and, and, uh, until they reemerge. Right, and and it's 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 interesting that Cheney went into oil and energy, mm-hmm. but Rumsfeld went into pharmaceuticals. Hmm. Okay, right? and it's specifically Gilead. Yes. So if you ask me, I would say. From my mind mapping, it's pretty good for this specific thing. I mean, you could say, oh, you know, t- take my theories. You can take them or leave it. But for finding out who owns what, I'm these are pretty solid for that. Okay. So the military industrial complex appears to be very close to two pharmaceutical companies more than others. One is Gilead mm-hmm. that Rumsfeld was in charge of. The other is Emergent Biosolutions. Hmm. which used to be called Bioport and, and was the one who made the anthrax vaccine and was involved in a big scandal in during the second Bush administration over getting these contracts for anthrax vaccine. This is after the anthrax attacks, mm-hmm. right? Which we've already talked about how sus they were. Yes. I mean, they come, they came from a government lab. That's right. proven. Yes. Sus. Um, this company emergence biosolutions just happened to have the vaccine and they were scandalized so much that they changed their name from Bioport to emergent biosolutions. Wow. They were, just now had a recent scandal because they were also given a bunch of contracts by the Trump administration for the manufacture of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which they fucked up like a million vials at this uh, oh, doses yeah. at the Baltimore lab. Yeah, I remember that. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's emergent biosolutions. OK. Right now we're talking about Gilead. Yes. Gilead. And Rumsfeld was Rumsfeld's, the chairman. He was the chairman of Gilead. In the late 90s. This is Rumsfeld's company. OK. OK. Gilead has already patented a drug called remdesivir for the therapeutic use of coronaviruses in general. And they filed for that patent in 2017. Really? The same year that John Bolton axed the pandemic department, same year that Trump took office. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I remember hearing about remdesivir. And, right. And, uh, that was the... So, so, so what happens in January in Wuhan, now you have an epidemic. Yeah. China's locking down, but they're also trying to figure out what the fuck this virus is, right? Um, And how to treat it. So Wuhan Institute of Virology starts doing trials for for two drugs in particular. One is called hydroxychloroquine. Mm, Yes. um, Which I think has no patent. Okay. Um, I, I believe it's not or the patent has expired or something. Yeah. It's, it's not something that someone it's owns. public domain. Something like roughly. that. Yeah. And remdesivir, which Gilead originally invented for, I think, Ebola. But then they started to realize they can use it for other stuff, including coronaviruses. Yeah. So you're saying when it was developed in, or patented in 2017, for you said, the use, for the treatment of coronaviruses. Yes. Okay. Right. Before the emergence. So SARS coronavirus has already come around. Mm-hmm. So as MERS, by the way, which they already... 
They've already done a vaccine on U.S. soldiers for MERS. Mm. Nobody talks about this. Okay. Um, these are both coronaviruses. MERS came from a camel. Oh, okay. I don't remember MERS. By the way, check this out. If you remember, so we've been talking about riots. Yeah. There was, remember the uh, Arab Spring? Yeah, of course. Started 2011. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it also, it didn't topple Saudi Arabia, but there was that oil producing region just happens to be a Shia region. Okay. Right. Saudi Arabia is Sunni. Okay. So you've got, it became very restive during the Arab Spring. Guess where, where MERS started? Saudi Arabia. It started in that same region where the Shias are, uh-huh. where they were protesting, and where the oil workers are. Interesting. That's where MERS started. Uh, okay. Okay. All right. Anyway, I'm saying these are both coronaviruses. Yeah. So there's SARS-1, there's MERS. And before the emergence of SARS-2, what we call COVID-19, yes. Gilead patents from Disevere for the use of all coronaviruses mm-hmm. in 2017, the year that Trump takes office. This yeah. is Rumsfeld's company. And by the way, Rumsfeld, unlike many of the other Bushies, is very supportive of Donald Trump. Hmm. All right, so 2017, Gilead patents remdesivir for the use of all coronaviruses. Yes. Now it's 2020, and the epidemic is emerging and becoming a pandemic in Wuhan. Yes. Guess who is doing the trials for remdesivir for this new coronavirus uh, in Wuhan? Gilead, could it be Gilead? Well, Gilead is the maker of the drug. Oh, but oh someone has to do the who's trials, administering right? it? The Wuhan Institute of Virology? The Wuhan Institute of, of Virology yes. is doing the trials for Gilead. Uh-huh. Because that's where the epidemic is emerging. Right. Now, if you think about Gilead and their remdesivir drug, they really need to get this thing out quick. Yes. Because the vaccines are coming. Right. And if you want to make money off this, you got to do it. You got to be you quick get about your it. drugs on in, in the, right. the street. So you got to have. So, of course, the where it starts is where the, they should do the trials. Yeah, of course. Who better to do it than the Wuhan Institute of Virology? Okay. Who else? So you've got Rumsfeld's company working with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which we've now are accusing of the lab leak, which may be true or not. Yes. OK. And things are weirdly calm between U.S. and China. Well, too quiet. Until the first week. Nobody's mentioned the lab. Nobody's mentioned the military games. Mm-hmm. And nobody's even blaming China for like starting the, you know, the pandemic. Trump is actually praising China at this point in January. So how did, so what changed? First week of February, the Chinese government and the Wuhan Institute of Virology announced, this is like February 4th, that they are going to be filing a patent for the use of remdesivir. Mm-hmm. For to treat COVID-19 in China. Okay. Because it's our country. Like, we can... Your patent laws well, don't apply in our country. Right, right. They have right. their own own patent law right. system. The Virology Institute, the Wuhan Institute of Virology says, you know, we're doing all this work. I think we can... Let's patent it just for China. Yeah, why not? It's our country, right? Mm-hmm. We're doing all the work. We should reap the... Well, fruits of our labors. Sure. A few days later is the first time anyone in the West hears the phrase lab leak hmm. from Tom Cotton. Tom Cotton, the the senator, who's uh-huh. like a major team B, got very Trump. What state? Arkansas. Okay. First right. time anyone hears the words lab leak is a few days after that pat- patent is filed. Hmm. And he says, by the way, there's a 
Nobody's talking about this, but there is a BSL-4 lab in Wuhan that works on coronaviruses. China's not being honest mm. about where the virus came from. Because up yeah. to this point, it was being told that it was from the market. Right. And from natural emergent, uh, emergence. No one knew about the lab. No one knew about this. this. Well, scientists knew, knew about the right, lab. Right, but, but the it was not in any media reports. Yeah. Except for one little thing in Daily Mail, mm-hmm. which is kind of, you know has sort of a tabloid vibe, but yeah. actually has clearly has <laughs> important information. Yes. Right after they filed that patent, the Chinese filed that patent in China. A little poke in Rumsfeld's eye. A few days later is the first time we hear lab leak, Wuhan lab, mm. which is doing the <laughs> the lab that's doing the trials. You see so what I'm saying? Ch- yeah. So China, you're saying China's being punished I'm for saying- patenting remdesivir and uh they broke the truce they broke the truce by they broke the truce. taking food out of out of the america's team b's mouths they <laughs> what okay I, I know you don't like the oj mode metaphor mm-hmm. but like let's go back to the to, to, to october again right uh-huh. you've got lapd in the house with oj getting splattered mm-hmm. you got lapd surrounding the house doing a simulation for blowing up the house mm-hmm. it's the maritime games you got lapd Headquarters doing a simulation for what would happen if Nicole died. Mm-hmm. That's the pandemic simulation for okay. a coronavirus on yeah. the same day. Right. Then you've got them texting other police agencies saying Nicole has died without actually officially reporting it. Mm-hmm. That's the secret bulletins to NATO and Israel. Then it, it's announced that Nicole is dead, but OJ and the LAPD are still getting along. OJ yeah. is China right. and LAPD is America. Right, right. There's a it a, 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 a imbalance of power here is my point. Mm-hmm. They're still getting along, yeah. and they start doing a bake-a-thon together. That's mm-hmm. the remdesivir. Okay. Okay. Forgive the metaphor, but they're doing a bake-a-thon. Yes. They're baking cookies together. Mm-hmm. That's the remdesivir drug. They're yes. collaborating. Yes. But very unequally. Yeah. One is a lackey, and one is the boss, the bully. Yes. The Debo. Mm-hmm. Remember Debo from Friday? Yeah. That's America. The bully. That's how the rest of the world feels about America. I'm doing a kind of like. A gesticulation yeah. where I'm like, like, inching back. Okay, like, man. Like, hey, yeah, like, yeah. don't fuck me up. Right. That's how the world feels about America, especially when they're doing military games in mm-hmm. your front yard. Yeah. So China's the lackey, America's the boss and the bully. Mm-hmm. That's Rumsfeld's company. Yeah. They're making Remdesivir together. In my metaphor, I'm sorry, <laughs> OJ and the LAPD. Police chief are making cookies together for a bakeathon, mm-hmm. and then and nobody has accused OJ of the murder yet, right? Or even talked about the murder weapon, which is the lab, I guess. Yeah. And then suddenly, one week, OJ says, "I want more proceeds from the cookies. I want to file a patent for severe just in China, just for my country." Mm-hmm. And a few days later, you hear lab leak: OJ killed Nicole. Yeah. Now, isn't it a little suspicious that they're only telling us? Then, after China's filed that patent, and mm-hmm. not in all the four months preceding when everything was weirdly chill between them. Yes. And they were running simulations for exactly this happening on so, the same day that it, like, 99% were sure right. started it there, that so, then. Yeah, so the U.S., I guess I just want to, I, I just, like, who exactly is pissed off about? Team B. Team B. 
Right. The, uh, okay, so the mili- military-industrial con- complex people are yeah, are they're pissed involved off in pharmaceuticals China, and biotech. Yeah, and that and they're pissed off that China it wants to get their own right. their cut of uh, well, they're they're not being obedient and subservient. Right, enough. right. They weren't. We didn't give them. And uh, you have to remember, Chinese are very practical, to, but also ha- they care a lot of. They have a lot of pride. They care about saving face. Understood. So yeah. when they file that patent, it's not really about the money, right? Right. It's about the like. I'm doing this work for you. And you started this fucking, I mean, I believe America started in China. Mm -hmm. Well, let me rephrase this. I believe they, in a way, look, at first when this started, I wasn't sure if it was like a sabotage or a subterfuge or some kind of backstab. Because that's usually how these countries do things, right? Right. But these Wuhan military games, every military is there. Yeah. They're all seeing what's happening. So that was a, you think that was, they were the guinea pigs for, we're going inf- to get um, all these healthy young folks I think it exposed was, I think it was to this d- thing. I think it was intentional super spreader event. Mm-hmm. And, and what I'm saying about um, America and being Debo is um, there's two ways to get <laughs> ripped off. Yeah. One is a, a, a kid or a, a guy uh, uh, pickpockets you. Yes. This used to happen to me a lot in Otis. These kids mm-hmm. would come up and they would distract me and they would pickpocket me and then when they, they would run away because yeah. they're afraid. Right. Right. But then there's another kind of way of getting ripped off, which is a bully. Uh-huh. And a bully comes up to you and they make, they make you submit. Mm-hmm. They, they don't pickpocket you. They're not tricking you. No. What they do is they come up and they do two things. They do it right to your face mm-hmm. and they do it so everyone can see. Yeah. That's submission. Right. That's humiliation. Dominance and submission. Let me tell you a, a pickpocketing story. Yes, to, please. To illustrate this. One time I was in Istanbul with a few friends. I was like a kid. That was like just out of college. Mm-hmm. Just after we graduated. Yeah. These shoe shiners passed us and like they accidentally, I'm doing a quotation, accidentally dropped their brush for, mm-hmm. the, for their shoe shine brush. Yes. So I picked up the brush and gave it to them they're like oh thank you so much and they get down on their knees and they start shining our like stupid sneakers yeah which don't need to be shined right and we and they're on their knees shining and we're like ah mm-hmm. shit this was the scam okay well we gotta get if a grown man is shining his shoes you have to give him something it's like when the, the homeless people like spray your yeah it's like a squeegee windshield. man but yeah. for your shoes right? right so we open our wallets to give them a tip and all of a sudden a bunch more of them appear and they take their massive muscular hands and shove them into our wallets to take all the money out and looking us straight in the eye. And it's out in the open, right? Wow. And we go, whoa, whoa, whoa. And it's happening very fast. We're like, wait, 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 hey, hey, hold on a second. And then they take their big hand after they mm-hmm. shove the money in their pockets, or maybe they gave it to the other guy. They take their big muscular hands. They take, they, you know, grab my puny little hand our, and our, they grab our hands with their big hands. Yeah. And they squeeze hard, painfully. And they look us straight in the eye and they say, Thank you. Thank you. Thank wow. you. And it's very intimidating. That is wild. That's dominance. Yes, it is. And we submitted to them. So what I'm saying is, and, and, and if, I, if the cops come, right, they can say, well, they, get, they tipped us. Mm-hmm. Right? So what's happening with dominance and submission is, one, you're being humiliated, mm-hmm. and everyone's seeing who's the boss. Yeah. But another thing that's happening is um, you're co-creating a story together that is to their advantage, right? Mm, yeah. Right? Right. He just tipped us. What are you talking about? Yep. So that's why it's important that everyone, that's in, it is in front of everybody. Sure. Well, you're co-creating a story. And I think 
Well, it's both. You're intimidating everyone at the same time yes. to get on the same story. Mm-hmm. And you're showing what will happen if they don't get on the same story. Exactly. But you're also creating... Like, imagine if we had put up a fight, right? Mm-hmm. That's not the narrative they want. No. And they Because knew then the cops can come and... Look, they fucking mm-hmm. hit me in the eye. And with then they had that brazen confidence. And they knew that that wasn't going to happen. They knew it wouldn't they happen. absolutely... But it's also... You see how it's preferable to them. Like, yes. they don't, they don't want to fight us. No even though they could beat our ass, yeah, it's much more preferable for us to have submitted to them. Yes. To concede to them. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it was to everybody's, uh, in everybody's best interest for right. that to happen. Uh, let me give you a, 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 it's never happened to me or else I'd be admitting mm-hmm. to a crime. But uh, imagine um, a woman in a gas station or a bodega. Yeah. She opens up the register. She takes money out. Yeah. Is she a thief? Wait, you're saying this is a customer who walks in? No, no, no. I'm saying, okay, uh, let's say we're only looking at... I'm, I'm talking about a holdup, really. Oh, I'm okay. trying to make a rhetorical yes. point. Let's say you're looking at a holdup, but the camera is only on the girl or boy, the cashier. They're yes. opening up the register. They're taking up money out. Uh-huh. Now, if you would just look at that, that's a thief. Right. Now, if you take the camera back and see that there's a guy pointing a gun to her head... She's under duress. She's under duress. Mm-hmm. And yes, in a way, she's complicit, sort of. She's doing what he's telling her to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is not an equal balance of power right. between the guy pointing a gun at you mm-hmm. and the girl with the register. Yeah. And in the in the eyes of the criminal law. Uh, <laughs> right. It's, You're a lawyer. That, no, so well, that's know. a defense to right. uh, that. You know, uh, her being under duress would be a valid defense to her stealing uh, or right. you know, she's taking the money, it. so it's a defense to larceny. Right. But yeah. what I'm saying is that she's submitting and she's conceding. To, she's not fighting him, right? Right. She and she's making it easier for him. He yes. doesn't have to break into the safe. Yes. She takes it right out for him because she's under duress. She's under threat. Mm-hmm. There's not an equal balance of power here. Right. And you and were maybe saying- he takes five dollars and he slips it into her pocket, right? Yeah. And she stays quiet. Mm-hmm. Now is she complicit? Well, kind of. At that point, well, yeah. But that- like. There's these two actors are not equal here. Right, right. That's America and China. So America, like in the world, like when you leave America, mm-hmm. the first thing you see is American power. Yeah. America to the rest of the world, America looks like Debo from Friday. He's this bully. Yeah. You remember this character? Yes, I do. Yeah. He's, he's like the villain of Friday. The villain of the neighborhood. Like and the, the, bully. And the point of Debo is he doesn't come and rip you off. Other people rip you off. Mm hmm. Debo comes right up to your face and he's big and he's scary. Mm-hmm. And he says, that's my bike, punk. Yeah. And everyone like, like, uh, defers and demurs and like, like submit to him. Yeah. They don't fight him. And that's America. That's America. Okay. Right. He doesn't have to fight you because he's so intimidating that you actually just give it out of your pocket. Yeah. Like the cashier. Right. Right. Or like me with those shoe shiners. What I'm saying happens. My theory. Now I've given you all the, evidence which is like becoming conventional wisdom and consensus yes that there were these military games that like we're pretty fucking certain that everyone was infected at mm-hmm. that place in that time yeah. and nobody told anyone yep and u.s and china were cool mm-hmm. weirdly cool for like a few months until they the wuhan institute of virology filed a patent on rumsfeld's drugs yes and now we hear about the lab. Uh-huh. And then China retaliates by saying, now, well, what about the Wuhan military games? Yeah. Now they tell us. So then. On the, both sides. Then it's back to. Then it's back rocky, to acrimony. R- yeah. Right. So I'm saying a few things happened in the fall. Yes. 
One is, I believe that the um, attacks at the Aramco facility that drove up the price of oil and and in Saudi Arabia, those Saudi the drones Arabia, that that yeah. was in in a way it was a kind of experiment and also a kind of a showcase to the world. Look what is about to happen. Look what will happen if just a t- with just a tiny increase in the price of oil, you will have protests everywhere. Mm-hmm. You're all fucked. Yes, we're all fucked. Right. This is this is the future. Like, I'm talking about the protests. So it now. was a demonstration. It was a demonstration of what will happen if we team B America. Mm-hmm. And and in a way, they're trying to kind of include everyone and make everyone complicit in this. Yes. That's really what the Wuhan military games are. Uh-huh. They're making. Especially China, but also the rest of the, all these fucking military personnel. Right. They all see what's happening. Mm-hmm. Maybe to different degrees. They're saying they're demonstrating to the world this is the future if we do not come up with a way to suppress demand because th- the price is going to jump up on its own without mm-hmm. a, a, a missile attack. This was to show what will happen. What will happen if we are not able to if control we don't do the something. demand of oil? Right. If we don't control the demand of oil. These protests with this tiny spike—that's mm-hmm. your future. That's mm. the future we're all looking at. That's the future lo- you're looking at. Okay. So now, we have a solution. We being America, Debo, yes. we're all gonna go to the military games. All of us. Yes. And China's gonna either we're gonna take something out of the register, that would be the Wuhan lab, or maybe mm-hmm. or maybe America brought it with them. Who knows? Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is it kind of doesn't matter if we brought it to there, or took it from there. Right. Some I mean, super spreader event is happening there, and nobody's talking about it. And the and the soldiers who are sick are being like actively suppressed from finding out if they even had it. Wow. Even though we know for sure that some countries did do the tests and they did have it. Yes. So what I'm saying is, America demonstrated to the world team, and by America I mean Team B. Yes. Not everyone in America is Team B. No. I don't think even Trump knew. But some people knew. Mm-hmm. The I, people I, in I, the military. I, I damn sure think fucking Rumsfeld knew. Right. So the people in the military industrial complex yes, who are. Who have been planning this for a long time. Yes. They want this to happen. And they, But they want to make everyone see why it needs to happen mm-hmm. so that they will. Hence the Aramco. Uh, that was the bombing. Aramco thing with yeah. the oil spike in the protest. They want to yeah. see. They want everyone to like. They want everyone to agree with them. Yes. They want them to see why it's necessary and be and not just they want them to submit to their power and their intimidation, mm-hmm. but they also want them to like, you know, a, a, a bully doesn't just hit you around. They also try and like tell you, you know, so do, this is why I'm doing this. So do you think there are other world powers then who watched this, who watched the fallout from the Aramco yes. attacks and were convinced by this? I think every. Do you think the, some that people okay? We don't like we 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 weren't on board with your controlled pandemic plan before, but well, maybe now they, we see. Like, do you think that's a thing that I happened that in the shadows any, somewhere? I think that it's very. There's, it's the, the smallest number possible yeah. know that it's coming, mm-hmm. but that it's that that small number is. It, it's like the highest echelons of basically every country mm-hmm. i think i think everyone knew mm-hmm. and the riots were to kind of convince them why it needs to happen and mm-hmm. nobody's telling them they're just seeing it and these aren't necessarily like heads of state like you said trump yeah, probably didn't even know it's it's like the it's people the in the, sh- the military the people in the shadows who really pull right. the strings right 
So what they're seeing is why this needs to happen, and they're also seeing the incredible intimidation and dominance of this, of not just America, but America under the craziest president they've ever seen, yeah. who's doing flexing hard in the Middle East at this exact moment. Mm-hmm. So America's like saying, we're going to do this, we're, we're having these military games, and everyone's getting infected, yeah. including us. Like, think how fucking <laughs> freaky it must be. Yeah. Like, imagine like a super bully comes right up to you, and it's like, give me some poison and like takes it himself <laughs> and like makes everyone take it. Yeah. And then it's like, and don't ever fucking say anything, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and also this is for everyone's good. Anyone got a problem with that? <laughs> and by the way, I might just go like beat up Iran right now and start world war three. Cause I'm insane. <laughs> right. So they're, yeah. they're really intimidating people. They're yeah. really flexing. No, the, like the playground, metaphor is is helpful or lunchroom or whatever i mean i'm sorry but the world's geopolitics and and world powers is a is a playground and there's a big bully and it's called america yeah yeah so i think the protests were in a way to showcase why it needs to happen the flexing the middle east was you know very iran specific Mm because these guys really hate iran because they control not just the oil of iran but also iraq yeah which if you add them together is more than saudi arabia right um but they also are flexing at this time to intimidate everyone. And they are intimidated because mm-hmm. nobody said anything. Yeah. Int- but, but, but China, China is not the little kid it used to be. It's not a, it's not a big Debo like America. Mm-hmm. But he's been. They're getting there. He's been, he's getting there. He's not a kid anymore. Okay. And he says, you know what? Fuck Debo. There's a great line in Friday, actually. Yeah. Uh, Chris Tucker. Because Debo shows up and totally dominates everyone. Chris Tucker's like, the same. he's like, cowers. Yeah. But then Debo leaves and he has a great line. He says, you know, <laughs> he says, I got mind control on Debo. When Debo's around, he'd be like, shut the fuck up. I'd be quiet. But when he leave, I'd be talking again. Right? Yeah. See what I'm saying? Yep. So America's now left. World War Three has been averted with Iran. Mm-hmm. China's looking around and is like, all right, we did everything we were supposed to do. You know, we're doing the trials for Rumsfeld. We're doing the trials for his company. You know what? Fuck Debo. While he's not looking. I'm going to patent it here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to patent it. Just a little poke. Yep. Just a little poke. And then there's a poke back. BSL Lab. The truce is broken. That's what I'm saying about those four months. That it was it was complicity under duress. Mm-hmm. But it was a kind of a, a weird truce between them. Because you have to remember, China is the biggest oil consumer in the world. Like, oh, okay. Obviously, they, I, I assume they didn't want it to happen on their country first. And no. they kind of intimidated it into that situation. Yeah. But, like, you could see that they could sort of understand, especially with the protest thing, because the big one is Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. They, you could sort of see how they, it would make sense to them, even though they're not happy about it. Right, right. But then they want to save face. And so they do this little poke on the patent. And a few days later... Tom Cotton starts talking about BSL Lab, mm-hmm. and soon do, so does Pompeo and Trump and like that. Okay. And then they back off a little bit. Went, right. Okay. Well, and then it sort of went that that uh, went away for like a year. And then, then it went away for a year. And now it's back. Now it's time. back. Right. Okay. All right. So uh, that was the riots of fall. I think that was the reason for the riots of fall. Okay. Let's get into... Um, who is Donald Rumsfeld? Who is Mike Jones? Two eight one three three zero zero eight zero zero four. Who is Donald Rumsfeld? 
I mean, I ask myself this all the time, and I don't have the answer, which is, but I guess the, my question, or the, the question I ask myself is, is this a guy with real power? Like, is he the guy in charge, like this mm-hmm. little dude from Princeton who, like, climbed his way up? Or is he just a salesman for the military-industrial complex? Mm-hmm. Or, or is actually being the salesman a kind of power in some ways? It's sort of both. Yeah. Let's listen to a quote from him addressing this very issue about personalities and all right and what he rep he's actually telling you what he represents let's listen to it rummy over to you in november 1975 i became the youngest secretary of defense in history it's important i suppose to go back and set the background for this occasion Henry Kissinger had the job of fostering detente, a lessening of tension with the Soviet Union. The more talk there was about detente, and the more these negotiations went on, and the more people sat around at clinking champagne glasses with great big smiles, and the world saw all of that. The Congress and the American people would not be in favor of increasing defense investment. It was really fundamental differences of approach. He ended up separating the positions of Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, which Henry had held both of them. And he made several other changes. Put George Herbert Walker Bush in the Central Intelligence Agency. He wanted to make a change at the Pentagon, asked me to become Secretary of Defense, and my deputy, Dick Cheney, to become Chief of Staff. Of course, this becomes known as the Halloween Massacre. I guess it is. You know, a narrative gets built out there over a period of time. Big personalities going at each other. In fact, it's perfectly understandable. They represent different institutions and they have different perspectives, but it gets written up in the media as though it's jealousies and personalities and and that type of thing, as opposed to different perspectives. So what he's saying here is, I'm not just a guy. I represent an institution. I represent certain interests. Yes. Um, Now, when I talk about Team B, I, I think... You know, the larger interest he represents is military-industrial complex. Yes. And what's interesting is that in this part of the documentary, he's actually kind of addressing the personal rivalry between him and George H.W. Bush. Mm-hmm. Um, Poppy Bush. Which is actually how he gets close to George W. Bush, who hates his own father. Oh, wow. He liked, and, and he's lo- always looking for a father figure. Ooh, that's so, and these dudes do this all the time. They find each other's sons, and they, like, cultivate them just to fuck with the, yeah. with the guy they don't like, the father. Wow. Um, so what he's saying is, one, there's Team B, which is the complex. That is a large interest. And Bush and H.W. Bush and W. Bush and Reagan and Rumsfeld are all part of that. Yeah. But he's also saying there's sort of internal um, wings of that. Um, and I would say that George H.W. Bush, if, if you think of... Uh, A versus B is two circles on a Venn diagram. That they're in the middle of the Venn diagram is oil. Mm-hmm. B well, is defense yeah. and A is 
finance, basically. Those are the guys who brought you Clinton and Obama. Um, more Democrats. But the, everything, oil is always Oil's at the, at the center. center of both. Yes. They both are very concerned about oil, but their priorities are different, right? Right. I would say that the finance guys are playing Monopoly. Team A. Team A is playing Monopoly. Okay. And Team B is playing Risk. Oh. They're playing Risk. Okay. And it's not just geopolitical risk. It's also, that, you know, this is a very... Um, I know this sounds like it kind of came out of the, you know, the cloud. But if you open any history book that that goes to scale about like a, a civilization, they'll mm-hmm. always talk about two kinds of elites, or really two two mm-hmm. major uh, uh, parts of a society that are usually at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. One is called the merchants, mm-hmm. and the other are the aristocrats, who are really warlords. I see. Right. Merchants versus merchants. aristocrats, monopoly versus risk, team right. A versus team B. Monopoly okay. players are the merchants. Mm-hmm. The risk players are the aristocrats slash warlords. The defense industry. Well, the aristocrats. The aristocrats. Now, Bush is actually kind of like that. That's why there's what he's talking about is there's an internal division within the aristocrat, the defense guys, who are because uh, Bush is Bush is both. He, he makes a lot of money from oil, mm-hmm. but he's also with the defense guys. Okay. Rumsfeld is pure defense. Okay. I've never seen him on the board of any oil company, and I and I can and you can see this in the uh, second Bush administration because there's actually two plans. Everyone agrees that we should go to Iraq. Yeah, the oil guys and the defense guys. Sure, um, and even the finance, you know, even <laughs> Britain. Um, but there's a disagreement about what to do with Iraq. Uh-huh. The oil guys don't want to drill because that would raise. Sorry, that would lower the price. More supply would mean lowering the price. Uh, Lowering the price, yes. Okay, and they want oil to be They want oil price to be high for their profits. Yes. Now, the defense guys, they don't care about the oil guys' profits. Mm -hmm. Not really. I mean, it's not not the highest on their hierarchy of needs. What do they care about? What they care about is playing risk, and they want to destroy OPEC because they think OPEC has too much power. Mm. So they're just – they just – are power hungry. It's just just about power. See, money to them is a means to an end. Mm -hmm. For the finance guys, money is the end. Uh, right okay. the merchants versus the aristocrats yeah they have different priorities even though they often i mean we're, we're really talking about the anglo-american empire yes and next week we'll talk more about how the, how these two split up right the a versus b mm-hmm. how did the merchants and the aristocrats no this is this diverge? is hel- this is really helpful though um, yes yeah yeah the um and and the guys around trump i know he made a lot of money for you know oil and <laughs> for every corporation but the guys who really put him there who really put him there um, if you look at, for example, like Black Rock versus Black Stone, mm. you know, they're very similar names. They even used to be connected. But Black Stone really represents aristocratic kind of money, mm. private equity. Uh-huh. Black Rock is invested in the entire market. Yeah. Right? So if you think about the pandemic. Oh, isn't that Black Rock who's, who's, try, who's uh, that, buying up? Biden. Yeah. And aren't they, uh, I mean, there was recently like. Everyone in his administration is Black Rock. Yeah. But bl- so Black Rock, yeah, aren't they like in trying to buy up all of this uh property like they're trying to buy houses like all over america have you heard about this right and 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 you know with the idea that um to create a basically a country of of renters and and to price an entire generation out of owning property you know what that is is that's the merchants trying to become aristocrats Uh it's a very classic story i see yeah you know there's this great italian marxist historian who basically says that capitalism began because there was a group of merchants 
who could not do what every other merchants have been able to do in history, which is become aristocrats. That's what you, that's mm. basically cashing out of the casino, right? Yeah. I want to take my pro- profits and go home. Yeah. They couldn't do that in Genoa because aristocrats were so um, firmly in place. They didn't want these merchants mm-hmm. to challenge them. Right. Um, unlike Venice or Florence, where the merchants became aristocrats, the Genoese didn't. So social mobility was not. Uh, they couldn't become an lords. option in Genoa. I guess because the the gentry was so well in place. Okay. And they lost their trading empire uh, in the east, so mm-hmm. they're blocked in the east by the Venetians, by other merchants. Mm-hmm. They're blocked from becoming aristocrats, so they have all this capital. They have this over accumulation of capital. Yeah. It's kind of Marxist uh, theory stuff. But look, capitalism really did emerge at this time. Mm-hmm. And this Italian guy, I love this guy. He says that. And this would have been when about 1450s. Okay. So after the fall of Constantinople in 1453, mm-hmm. the Genoese lose their trading empire to the east because mm. they're going through. You know, there's this famous tower in Istanbul, Constantinople, called the Galeta Tower. That mm. was the Genoese colony in Constantinople. So they lost their trading empire in the east to the Venetians and the Ottomans. They can't become aristocrats. Yes. They're blocked by the merchants. They're blocked by other. They're, sorry, they're blocked by other merchants. They're blocked by aristocrats. So they become capitalists. So, the guys around Trump, even though Trump is great for capitalists, uh-huh. I mean, let's. I mean, the, the stock market was. He always would talk about this, and it was true. The stock market did great under Trump. Yeah. And but the pandemic is not good for the market. Um, initially, and the market. Remember, the merchants are quite short-term thinkers. Yeah. In, in this sense. Okay. Right. The, the the risk players can think short terms um, when they're being dumb. You're saying the merchants are more about like we term get profit. Let, get money now. Yeah. Get money now. The mm-hmm. risk players, in some ways, this is why I kind of respect them more. Mm-hmm. They think more long term about like, yo, oil's running out. Yeah. And there's like, like only in the last year did the merchants, the stock markets, the corporations start to care about climate change. Mm-hmm. These guys in the Pentagon, who I hate, yeah. as much as I hate them, they've been writing about climate change since 2004. Yeah. And whether you agree with them or not, obviously any moral person has to disagree with them. Sure. The pandemic is a solution, a horrifying solution, but it is a solution for suppressing demand. Right. I have all these friends that are like uh, anarchists or communists. They're like, de- they call them, they're into something called degrowth. Mm-hmm. Which is like, look, I mean, it's not, they're right. I mean, they're like, yo, we have to degrowth. We have to stop growing because we're about to extinct ourselves. In in terms of uh, like. Like the economy has to stop. Like every economy in the world in the 20th century, communist and capitalist, all sought. Right, the go- the goal growth is, as the, the ultimate. Is, yeah, right. We have to grow. Every company, they're seeing. Yeah, you know, our GDP. Our, we have to grow. Our we have profits to grow. have grown. Our revenue has grown. Yeah. Every even communists, year. even Stalin, and you yeah, know, anyone can see. And China has been, you know, if you think about it for two seconds, you can see that that's unsustainable in the long term. <laughs> I don't know why it took us so long to figure this out, <laughs> uh, but yes, I mean, I'm, you know, and, and merchants like the growth, right. And everyone liked the growth while it was good for them. Yeah. But um, now these like lefty people are saying we need to degrow if we're going to survive. We need degrowth. Mm-hmm. And the pandemic, as horrifying as it is, it is a kind of degrowth. Forced degrowth. Forced degrowth through horrifying diabolical means. But mm-hmm. it do- it is a solution. I'm not endorsing it. Yeah. But you have to look at 
you know, evil people don't think they're evil in their own minds. No. Especially like military guys who are very, you know, not comfortable, but they've, they, their job is to make sacrifices for some larger good. That's what they tell themselves. Right. You know. Up to and including killing people. Yes. They, that's what they, and they tell themselves, you know, like we're, we're, we're taking on this burden for the greater good. Right. And someone has to be tough. Mm-hmm. Someone has to make the tough decisions. And I don't see anyone else coming up with a degrowth solution. No. I don't see anyone else coming up with a suppression of demand. We have a solution. It's either in the Wuhan Institute of Virology or Fort Detrick or in a pangolin. Who knows? But it is a solution. And we're mm-hmm. going to send it everywhere with the Wuhan military games. But we're especially going to keep sending it to the BRICS. Because those are the those are the economies driving demand. Yes, and it's okay for America to get it at first, as long as we get vaccinated. Because then, even if everyone has been knocked down by this, we'll be the first ones to get back up. Brazil, Russia, India, India China, China. They tried <laughs> South Africa. Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Those are the BRICS, and those are where all the viruses emerge plus the uk mm-hmm. which we'll talk about more next week but team a is really centered in the uk mm-hmm. for specific reasons around the city of london and their financial um um the city of london is really the financial center of the world yeah um so that's their plan that's rumsfeld's plan i believe he i believe he personally knew it's too much of a coincidence that his company is making remdesivir okay and the truce was broken when they filed that patent because China was like, I don't want to be your, if I'm going to be your lackey, you know, fuck so, you. So what is, I'm just, okay. I, I just, what is like when Rumsfeld died or like in the last few years, like what was his, what was he doing formally? Was he retired quote unquote, or was he do like what? Well, you know, just he, because I, I, you know, I, I understand why you're referring to, Gilead as uh, Rumsfeld's company, but yes. I would just I I genuinely am curious as to what his involvement has been recently, <laughs> if if anything. Um, he made an app about solitaire. I don't know what. Look, look I guess look. I understand. It's a, it's a valid. I understand. Question, I'm right? telling a story using um characters. Yes, and I I, I wanted to play that Rumsfeld quote to sort of be upfront with you mm-hmm. like Rumsfeld is not like the evil diabolical gene actually you know there's this movie uh land of the dead yeah it's in the it's in the uh the, the night of the living dead night of the living dead George, George um, Romero uh, universe yeah George Romero 2005 Rumsfeld is still defense secretary when it comes mm-hmm. out and I guess Dennis Hopper like knows him or is friends with him or something yeah. and um Dennis Hopper was in the movie. Dennis like the Hopper is the, the villain movie, of the movie, right? and he's yeah. really usually over the top. Like yeah. he's pretty like hams it up like in Blue Velvet. And, yeah, in Blue Velvet, like he's a classic villain. I mean, he's right. the best. Yeah, uh, and he go- went to the director. You know, I saw this on Twitter because he just died. Uh-huh. Uh And these movie nerds posted this. Yeah, they said you know it was an interview with George Romero saying, um, Dennis Hopper came to me and was like, I don't want to ham this guy up this time. I want to play him like Rumsfeld. And the director goes, perfect. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. A boring villain. Yeah. Right. Walkers, Mr. Kimbo. And moving toward the city. They'll never get across the river. I wouldn't be so sure. Learning how to work together. 
They're mindless walking corpses, and many of us will be too if you don't stay focused on the task at hand. Zombies, man. They creep me out. Now, what I'm saying is, look, I do think he's a villain. Yeah. But I, I, when I, when I, I played that quote, I want to play that quote where he's talking about the interests he represents, mm-hmm. the institutions he represents. So it's not necessarily it's not important the that it's he's hi- a salesman. whether it's him or not. It's what he represents. It's what he represents. He okay. represents Team B. All right. Now, to tell this story, um, you know, I have to use characters. And mm-hmm. I think it's significant that Rumsfeld is on the company of Gilead. Yeah. I, you know, when people, when you find the same people doing the same things, that's a good sign that these institutions are integrated. Yes. Usually, yes. The more, the more of the same people you find, it's a pretty insular crowd. Yeah. Like with the anthrax simulation and the, sorry, the smallpox simulation, the anthrax attacks and the Iraq War and the people who. You know, push the WMDs are now the same people with the lab leak, and it's the same people with the US. You know, they're the same people, and the people are kind of a way to track what this thing is doing. Yeah. Um, but the personalities are not real, not really that important. I okay. feel. All Although right. I'm, I, I, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know no, if no, like no. one guy has like more power than anyone else. Yeah. Or if he's a salesman for a bigger thing. But I think that. The entity is what's important. Yeah. No. Okay. I get it. Thank. That's. That's. Thank you for. Yes. Clearing that up. That makes total. So sense. the entity that brought you Trump mm-hmm. is the same entity that brought you the Iraq War, mm-hmm. and it's the same entity that is the military-industrial complex. Weak, 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 weakness historically tends to prove to be provocative and create instabilities in wars and conflicts. Strength on our part will contribute to peace and stability in the world. Riders on the storm. back today i'm going to be talking about sly and the family stones 1971 album there's a riot going on and if you held a gun to my head (laughs) and asked me what's your favorite album of all time yeah five seconds uh this is the one i would give you um this is it. This is it. This is really as good as it gets. You're saying if I, if someone, this is your number one of all time. I mean, it. That's really, it's an impossible question to answer because there are so many other albums that I love. Argue, you know, arguably as much as this one, or close to as much as this one, but it's really to me the very definition of lightning in a bottle, as the cliche goes. Mm. It's it's been very influential in music in many ways, but nothing no, you know nothing else sounds quite like it. And it's just, I mean, I'm I'm gonna you know be going into why why this is why is this album so special, 
why do I love it so much, but it just, it's just resonated so strongly with me for so long that I do, I really feel like if I can only have one album on a desert island with me, this would be a strong contender, if not number one, probably number one, definitely in the top five. Yes. So when you said, you know, we wanted to be talk. You're going to be talking about riots. Yeah. Um, we talked about international. We're about to now. We're going to America. Yes, America. Right. And this album, you know, as you pointed out, it's very, very much about America, and that's apparent. America. From both the cover art and the music itself. Right. But um, so I think yeah, it's it's conceptually appropriate. Yeah. That we're talking about it. <clears throat> so tell me about Sly. Well, yeah, who's Sly. Sly who's Sto- okay, so Sly and the Family Stone. They're, I mean, they were a huge deal in the late '60s, um, and I feel like I don't see, you know, as many. I don't see people talking about them a whole lot these days. I mean, even a lot of music from that era is talked about less. Um, so it's easy to kind of forget you know as far removed as we are from that time in history um they were a huge deal but sly so sly stone is the guy who's the mastermind behind this band the creative director frontman as it were but his real name is sylvester stewart he was born in texas but grew up in the san francisco bay area which is where the band got started, but basically he worked as, so he was working as a DJ at a radio station in San Francisco in the mid-1960s and kind of started doing some songwriting and production work. He, by, by the time, you know, when he was a child, he was, he was a musical prodigy. He had already, he mastered several instruments mm. as a child. I mean, he was a great guitarist, keyboardist, um, bass player i mean he ba- played everything pretty much and um was a brilliant producer too but he and his siblings when he was a child played gospel music and so that's sort of what he, he cut his musical teeth on he grew up in san he grew up in the bay area, bay area. Yeah, in san francisco and um and then in, so in 19 so he's working as a dj and then in 1966 uh, he formed the band sly and the family stone and Sly Stone be, is being his stage name, all sort of alter ego, which I'll go into a little bit later. But Sly and the Family Stone were very unique in that milieu of um, the mid to late 60s uh, music scene for several reasons. Um, they were uh, mixed gender. So... Uh, I mean, it was, you know, Sly Stone um, was the front man, but he, his sister Rose Stone was, uh, play, played keyboards and also sang. Um, and uh, there was uh, Cynthia Robinson uh, who played trumpet and also sang, um, and, you know, both, both women. And then um, you had Greg Errico on drums um, and... Uh, you know, this is where he got his start, but he uh, later played with like Santana and the Jerry Garcia band, um, but really renowned drummer Larry Graham on, Larry Graham. Ba- on bass, who is who is Drake's uncle. Drake's uncle. Right. Uh, so 
<laughs> yeah, so this would be Drake's father's brother. I believe so. Okay. Yeah, and um, and he played bass. And later, after he left the Family Stone, formed a band called Graham Central Station. Yeah, it was, yeah. I'm sure you've heard. You know, they had some some moderate success in in the 70s. Yes, <clears throat> but uh, so mixed gender also uh, multiracial. Yeah. Uh, I mean, mo- most of the members were black, but you know you had. Greg Erico, the drummer, was white, right. uh, and so you know, just on those sort of you know surface surface identity levels, they looked different from what was going on. Yeah, and that's uh, but then you know on a musical level too, they were incredible, incredibly unique and groundbreaking. What their their music, sort of a an amalgam of pop, soul, rock. Right. Funk, psychedelic right. soul is sort of, in, you could say, invented psychedelic soul, yeah. which is sort of an idea that emerged at that time in the psychedelic rock era. And then <clears throat> I think you kind of see a lot of a lot of uh, takes on the idea of psychedelic soul these days um, with stuff like Solange's last album and and stuff like SZA, Anderson Pack, um, a lot of stuff like rap and r&b currently is sort of on the continuum yeah. that sly and the family stone sort of founded in the late 60s um but you know they they started their first album came out in 67 it's called a whole new thing it was sort of a flop um then in 68 um they put out an album called dance to the music and the title track of that album, Dance to the Music, became a big hit. Yeah. And that sort of was when they caught fire. And, right. uh, well, actually, they put out one album. The al- their album that came out after Dance to the Music was called Life, which had no hits and was sort of a flop. But then after that, um, they, uh, in 1969, um, they released an album called Stand. Stands. Stand, exclamation point. Right. And that was a huge album, uh, I mean, both musically, and it, it had several hits. The title track, Stand, which I love, absolutely slaps. Stand, don't you know that you are free? Well, at least in your mind, if you want to be. great album uh it has i want to take you higher Mm. and probably their biggest most iconic hit everyday people Mm. um does it have a if i want you to stay no that that came later okay that was on fresh from 1973 all right but um that's my we'll get to that yeah um but uh and also, they their performance at Woodstock yes. in August of 1969 right. was sort of what, like, clinched, sort of, their superstar like A level A list status in the music world, because um, it was just it was a huge hit, one of the most renowned sets 
at that iconic festival. Right. Um, and and the festival is about peace and love, and it's at this. It sounds like at this point, or I guess you were telling me this before. At, mm-hmm. the, at, at this point in their his sorry, his slash their career, mm-hmm. just sounds like it's really I mean, he's it's, the star right right it's essentially it's a glorified sly stone solo project right but the band is important with all these cool cats mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. but at this point i mean it's almost like a story of the 60s like it's inc- the music sounds incredibly optimistic right and exactly. and there's a vision of of integration yeah there's a vision you know whether it's racial whether it's different mm-hmm. styles psychedelic and soul there's like the idea of like we can all get along and we can all do this to, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. yeah exactly. it sounds almost like naive by today's standards but like you can hear this like yeah the, like i mean kind the op- of wide-eyed like like we can do it like a, right. like a optimism in there yeah i mean the optimism yes it it comes through very strongly early sly in the family stone the early stuff is ve- it's like radically uplifting right positive i used to love that stuff yeah with like a social content yeah socially conscious uh music now it's to sell toyotas you know exactly i mean you you hear everyday people today and it's you know it's so played out <laughs> right. and, and been used in so many commercials that it's almost like oh i you know i'm rolling right. my eyes at this but but the, but the commercials would never use this stuff they would never use this no, album no i mean there's right. a riot going on the album right. that i'm going to talk about today this is the is, sl- this is the this it's is the, the one that can't be used to sell a car. No, it's the heart. It is the heart of darkness in nice. many ways. Nice. And nice. so we're we're gonna be getting into that because obviously, you know, judging by how the Sly Stone uh, story goes has gone so far, it's uh, it's about to take a dark, darkish turn. Okay. But okay, so basically, you know, Woodstock happens, Sly and the Family Stone. Uh, you know, blows everyone off the stage. Um, and uh, and then, so in 1970, comes around. And then, so at this is around the time, I think, when, when this, oh, uh, this huge success that mm. Sly Stone is having kind of starts to, it starts to get to him and, yeah. and starts to kind of take a toll on on I guess, his mental health and his well-being in general and he's on he's on drugs yeah i mean yes he i guess everyone's on drugs everyone's on drugs but th- around this time was when you know sly stone notoriously started getting really into cocaine and a lot probably you know just about every other drug under the sun and he was t- taking a long time to deliver a fo- so stand the album stand came out in 1969 mm. i think maybe earlyish in 1969 and um and that's the year of the manson murders obviously right. he records it before that but 1969 is kind of this watershed year for the 60s where you know like joan didion writes about this where like all of a sudden people go especially with the murders yeah they go like whoa uh maybe this wasn't all flower the dream power. is that yeah so so i'm i just looked it up so stand came out in may 1969 and um you know so woodstock happened in august 1969 and i'm not sure when the manson murders were but something i think it may be in the summer um and then 
Well, some point during that year. And then in December of 1969 was Altamont. Sure. Which, sure. Uh, if you don't know, was this free... So the Rolling Stones organized this free concert um, in Altamont, Cal- California, I think. As like a response to Woodstock. Yeah, it was basically of, right? like gonna, intended to be a free concert you know, massive free concert, kind of like Woodstock turned out to be. Woodstock wasn't intended to be free, but um, but eventually, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people showed up and it became a free concert. Um, but Altamont, so that was intended to be like the West Coast answer to Woodstock mm. and it was free and the Rolling Stones were headlining mm. and, um, and it's, you know, ended in this bloody tragedy when they hired the hell's angels Mm -hmm. to be their security and uh a concert goer um was killed by a a hell's angel uh and the concert was black i think yeah i think the concert goer the hell's angels are all white yeah as far as i know and and that was documented in the the uh, mazel's brothers film give me give me shelter um but you know, a lot of people kind of see Altamont as like when the, the '60s died. You yeah. know, like when that um, hippie idealism and optimism kind of you know had had this really um, the wave is crashing. This wake up call. Yeah, exactly. And it was, um, yeah, it was it was a dark time. So that was like, you know, that was happening, and um, so Sly Stone started getting more into drugs. And he started, uh, you know, notoriously showing up late for these big concerts or skipping them entirely. Um, You know, I think there's, you know, a show at Madison Square Garden where he showed up like five hours late or some, you know, some something like that. But he became really he's acting like a rock star. Yeah, pretty much. Um, And and so, you know, back in those days. Um, artists, the expectation of the rate at which artists release new material was much higher than it is now. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's, it's almost mind blowing to look back and, and see like, you know, mo- most artists, pop artists, rock artists, soul, whatever, um, put out, uh, you know, like an album every year, just mm-hmm. about. And, um, that was oh, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, that's the, today. You mean? No, no, that was back then. Back then. Back then. Okay. You know, at least an album per year. Sometimes more than that. You know, singles, uh, at at a similar right, right, rate. Right. Whereas now you see, like, I I feel like obviously it varies from artist to artist, but I feel like you know, look at major even at major pop artists, an album cycle these days is maybe every three years, two right. two years, three years. May, you know, even longer if it's a more... How many years between, like, a Beyoncé album? Yeah, okay, so Beyoncé, that's interesting. Okay, so it started out, her first album came out in 2003, Crazy in Love. Okay, B-Day came out in 2006. Yeah. Okay, that was three years, and then um, I Am Sasha Fierce was 2008, two years. Right. Uh, four, I believe, came out in 20. 20- Either 2010 or 2011. This is amazing. That you could <laughs> do. He's doing this off this dome, by the way. He's not like looking it up. Four was either 2010 or 2011, uh, and so that's another two or three years. Okay, and then the and then her self-titled 
was late 2013. So that's another two to three years. Two to three years. And then Lemonade 2016, that's three years. Right. Which and, is, right. And then, so, and, you know, since then she put out that homecoming yeah. live, live show. But, you know, now that I think about it, when I got really into Prince, it was a, I realized it was a big, d- actually, Chris Rock said this. Mm-hmm. He said the thing Prince and Woody Allen have in common is they both make, they yeah. both make a thing every year. Exactly. Which and is like actually a lot. Com- it's a lot to what compared people to do now. what the norm is now. What but, the norm is now. But the norm in the late 60s yeah. and early 70s was everyone was like, you know, was like that, had to be like that. Right. For, you know, for the most part, with few exceptions. But, um, and so all that is to say that, you know, we're in, in the middle of 1970. Sly Stone had not yet delivered the follow-up to Stand, which came out in May of 1969, mm. and the so he's suit, late. Yes, the by suit, their, by the by yeah by 1960s standards. Exactly, and so the suits at Columbia Records, uh, you know, start were were not happy with that. Columbia Records is there like this? There's a very famous Turkish guy there, right? Uh, are you talking? Are you thinking of uh, Ahmet Ertgun? Yeah, Nushi Ertgun. Yeah, that was Atlantic Records. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry, That's sorry, right. sorry. Mm. This is your area. Sorry. No, but that's cool. You you know you know. Well, you know at Nublu they have a because uh, they're Turkish at Nublu. Mm-hmm. They have this portrait of what's his name again? Ertgun. Uh, well, there's there's two. There's Ahmet and Nushi. That's Columbia. One Records. of them is no. That's Atlantic. That's Atlantic Records. Um, yeah, let me look this up because I think it might be a kind of a father. So okay, yeah, Ahmet Ertgun, Turkish Americans businessman songwriter and philanthropist yeah he was associated with atlantic records you know with like he did a lot of jazz jazz mm. stuff oversaw a lot of great like classic jazz records with john coltrane mm. and um i think ornette coleman and wrote and like ray charles he wrote he wrote some songs too mm. um but nushi oh his older brother nushi okay they were brothers so yeah um no, that's that's cool. You, but so sl- okay. So like, well, in this, when I think of the '60s, I think I think of Barry Gordy and Motown is like running shit. Yeah, but there's other stuff going on. Oh, there's tons of other stuff going on. But what I was trying to, what I, where I was going with the the time thing was, in 1970. So Columbia is waiting for Sly to finish his next album, and he's not delivering. So as a stopgap, they release in in. November of 1970, a greatest hits album okay. for the sl- for Sly and the Family Stone. They need to put something out. They there. need to put something. Out. And and you know the crazy thing is this is a band that's only been around since 1966. Right. They've only had hits since 1968. Right. And but so many. And yeah, yeah, and yet they're putting out a greatest hits. And this great this is one of the greatest greatest hits albums there is. <laughs> you know, I mean, I could take you know like the the rockest in me is, you know, all, always wants to favor the album you know like the the proper album over the compilation and in a lot of cases i think that's the right way to look at it but in some cases um you know there's just no denying a great greatest greatest hits hits compilation and there are a few out there that i would point to as like specifically great but this and this is one of them like it because it's all the early sly and the family stone hits um plus Two new so, two uh, new songs. Yeah, two new songs. So like the idea of the new track or like the two new songs on the greatest hits album 
to to kind of to get you to get fans to to buy it even if they have all the other albums i that that might have had its genesis with this album that's actually something i would i'll need to look into uh in in my music nerd research but that so the two new songs on the sly and the family stone greatest hits albums which were both big hit singles were hot fun in the summertime hot fun which is, in the summer i think one of his very best songs yes um just gorgeous yeah yeah i got that that easy going shuffle barbecue music yeah exactly and and the other one the other hit from the greatest hits album of new song was as thank you for letting me be myself classic and if you've ever seen the title of that song written yes it's spell you know they they it's kind of is a a little peek at sly stone's eccentricity yeah you know because it's spelled like phalaton me be mice like a mouse yeah and then like elf. elf Again, A G I N. Yeah. Uh, so, and that that particular song was um, really revolutionary for the time in the in the w- musically, nice. um, because it was <clears throat> I think maybe the first one of the first, if not the first record hit record for sure, but records in general you, that uses slap bass. Oh shit! The courtesy of Larry Graham, Drake's Drake's uncle. Drake's uncle, <laughs> and um, is using slap bass on the first one of the first, yeah, number like, one songs. Yeah, number one hit song. Thank you for letting me be my elf. Right. And also, this the the lyrics of this song sort of take a bit of a darker turn compared to the earlier optimistic right. songs. Where because at this time he is, <clears throat> well, clearly he's not making a new album, right? And they're pushing this thing out there, and they're saying, "Well, you got to give us at least two new mm-hmm. hits." Yeah, yeah, you know, he's he obviously he's going through, you know, he's a lot of, a lot of stress with you know these the record company, you know, pressuring him to. To, to deliver the album and uh, you know he's got to perform obviously he has issues with uh, del- you know f- delivering on his, his ob- professional obligations this is um, 1970 now it's 1970 yeah and um, but during so d- during all this time he is recording um, the album that I'm discussing today there's a riot going on mm. <clears throat> Is he recording it like, like, all the time? But he's just not ready for the label to hear it. Like he's in kind of eccentric genius mode, where he actually uh, doesn't want to work on it, and the label is trying to get him to work on it. No, I think he's. I think it's more the former, where he's, 
he's in his creative genius mode. He's trying to perf- perfect Make, it. I, I think so, Matt, but that's an interesting question because when you hear the final product, it's not it's it's not like the polished yeah, it's work organic. of a perfectionist yeah. you know it's in, in many ways it's kind of like raw and yeah. not messy but like very loose and yeah. and also i mean I'll, I'll talk more about you know the sonically how it is and and the reasons for that but um yeah he was basically just and and so the, the album was recorded i mean over the course of 1970 and 71 and and apparently at two places uh, one was the um, the record plant studio in Sausalito, California, in the Bay Area, and then also at Sly at his Bel Air mansion had built a home studio, and so a lot of the work was done there. Um, but okay, so you know, kind of part of the back, you know, before I go into act, the actual album, as just some last background, you know, Sly in 1971, he's disillusioned. With, with fame and, and its attendant pressures. Uh, he's on a lot of drugs. Um, and, uh, and also, uh, so apparently around this time, um, the Black Panthers were, you know, he was, were kind of trying to reach out to him and get him involved in, in, a, in a major way in to what they were doing at the time. He, they wanted him to be a Panther? They wanted him to be, yeah. Kind of like, endorse them? And, exactly. And to be like, <clears throat> you know, kind of participate in the sort of uh, in like the black liberation right. that they were, um, that they were aiming for right. at the time. And so. Which is <clears throat> sort of uh, incongruous with the super integration. Mm-hmm image that he was putting out in the 60s right and very integrated band of white and black people and very optimistic and like exactly right and so and i I want to read a quote because one thing interesting thing about the album is that it's credit it's credited if you look on the record label um it's credit it says like written arranged and produced by sylvester stewart and sly stone so he's that those which are, are both, both him, him. Yeah. yeah sly stone sylvester stewart's his his government name yeah sly stone is his uh you know stage name alter ego and he's including both and he's including he's credited the album is credited to both of these entities right and i wanted to read so there's this great um feature that uh was in rolling stone magazine in 1971 or maybe 19, no, yeah, 1971 by Timothy Krauss. Um, and he's interviewing um, David Kapralik, who was um, Sly Stone's manager uh, at the time. The Jewish guy? It's a Jew- yep. Okay. It's a Jewish, a white Jewish guy. And um, so I'm reading. So the first thing that Kapralik. Uh, Sly Stone's manager, explained to each reporter was the difference between Sylvester Stewart and Sly Stone. Mm. Sylvester is creative, rational, responsible, and representative of everything that is life-affirming and healthful in our society. Okay, that's Sylvester Stewart, Mm. he goes on to say. He's a poet, and then there's also Sly Stone, the street cat, the hustler, 
the pimp, the conniver, sly as a fox and cold as a stone. That's the strutter, the street dude who walks up there with that charisma that holds an audience captive, right? 400,000 at Woodstock and 25,000 at Madison Square. He's irresponsible, opportunistic, and unethical, and he pimps our minds if we let him. Yeah, so that... That's that is Sylvester and Sly, and Sly in the same mint. Yep, and that is that is wax and gold. That is wax uh, and that, gold. So that's you know that's his his manager. It's fucking Gemini, framing bro. it. Yeah, um, but then later in the story, Sly does get a chance to respond. So I'm reading. I asked whether Kapralik had been right when he said that Sly was really two people. He's probably either right or wrong, said Sly. They're so close together, that's all right. Sly hadn't had a chance to read what Kapralik had said. He had been too busy writing songs in his head. He was writing a song in his head right now, but if I wanted to hear it, we'd have to forget about the interview. Kapralik said that Sylvester is fantastic, he's responsible. He gets everywhere on time, he's a beautiful cat, I said, trying to bring Sly back to the question. Did he say that, said Sly? But Sly, on the other hand, is not responsible. He's a fuck-up. Did he say that? said Sly. I'll tell you what is true. David Kapralik tries his best, and I don't think he has any malice in his heart. Whatever he said, he didn't know what he was talking about, I don't think. Because I am who I am when I am it. I am who I am when I am it. I am who I am when I am it. It's kind of like like and this Popeye is taken to the next level. The 1970 greatest hits album which Mm -hmm. is basically masking the fact that he's not making an album which means he's already kind of on a on a different he's not he's not the same hopeful optimistic guy he was before Mm -hmm. and that's when he releases thank you for letting me be myself yeah and he's also saying here i am what i am when i am it yep like fucking leave me alone and let me be let me be me Exactly. He sounds right. like he's he's been suffocated by right. by the machine, and he just wants to be who he is and create right. his art. And, and that's when he makes that's when this he's making. Album. There's a riot going on, right. and so the recording of this album, you know, like I said, it took place in those two st- in, in that studio, and in his Sly's uh, studio in his Bel Air mansion. Um, you know, there are, the whole thing was recorded in sort of this druggy haze. So there is not, you know, uh, there aren't solid accounts about exactly who plays what on what track. But generally what we can say is Sly himself played most of the instruments on the album and, you know, recorded them on multi-track tape overdubbing um, over stuff he had already played. Uh, But there are many other musicians on the album, uh, members of the Family Stone, uh, and allegedly um, Billy Preston plays keyboard somewhere, Ike Turner is supposed to be on it, and Mm. Bobby Womack, um, among others. Um, You know, so a lot of, you know, other, there are other players overdubbing these guys their are stuff. coming in and out of this bel air mm-hmm. mansion yeah. studio i would imagine it was it was something something like that but 
Um, and so part of this, the way the album sounds, it has a very um, sort of hazy, murky, grimy mm. uh, sort of um, blanket over the whole thing. And a lot of that is the result of excessive overdubbing on mm. on the magnetic tape. So, you know, albums back then were all, all because the only technology there was for recording really um, was analog tape. And, um, you know, when you're overdubbing yeah. some over something you've already recorded on tape, your the, the tape is physically running through the machine again. Yeah. And, you know, it's built to withstand a lot of play and a lot of re-recording, but you know, every time you dub another, you know, record dub another track over the same piece of tape, it is wearing. Yeah. It puts a slight amount of wear on that tape. So yeah. when you have, you know, a, a tape that you're doing a lot of over overdubbing, right. which in the case was definitely the case with this album, especially because he's recording, you know, overdubbing over himself, over and over again. Um, that's just makes the tape naturally deteriorate a little bit. Right. But in this case, it is to the album's benefit yes. because it is an aesthetic, it is aesthetically, um, just really suits the material very well. Yeah. You it know? sounds like things are wearing down. Yes. And, and also kind of gives it like what this time was like. Right. And it also sort of gives it this mysterious warmth, mm. kind of like a. Yeah. I feel and and on some tracks like especially you know just like a baby that's the mm. second track yes. which is this sort of downbeat shuffle it sound literally sounds womb like like I'm just in sizzling yeah just like a I, you know what the, pic, the picture I get from it is a uh, hot asphalt in the summer. Isn't that like yeah. a track on the album? Is it something asphalt? There is. Well, yeah. One of the tracks on the album is called Africa Talks to You, the Asphalt Jungle. Dude, like, you know, like in New York, mm -hmm. this, it's like summer now in New York. It's kind of nice that actually. Yeah. Uh, a little cooler But do you know that when it's just like fucking sizzling. Yeah. Just, and like this place is yeah. like. No, I can, I can, you can feel, you can you know, and it feel, it comes off the asphalt. You the can heat. feel the heat radiating yes. off of the vinyl here. Yes. Yeah. That's what this sounds like. Like yeah. if that first thing we did, the first episode was mm -hmm. cold. Yes. This sounds like this hot, but hot. like New York asphalt hot. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but so that's, you know, so the whole album has this, this murky haze over it. Um, he records, I've, I've read that he recorded some of his vocals lying down in bed mm. uh, using a wireless microphone. And some of his vocals do have this sort of like up close um, languid sort, you know, quality to them that where, where I would believe that if that were, if that were the case. Um, but basically, you know, where, where er, before this Sly and the family stone music was very optimistic yes. and hopeful uh, and hopeful. Um, the material, the, the stuff on this album is is um, 
it ha it's it's kind of dark and nihilistic yes and and it's not there are no um politi you know it's there are no political statements ex at least explicitly right. being made here but the whole thing has it really ref it's it's weary and it reflects it's like an exhaustion yeah it's, it is an exhaustion but it is an absolute work of genius yes um it's it's I mean, it's, I mean, it's this really the music. end of one era and the start of another. Right. It's like, I mean, it's happening here in 1971. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can, like, hear it on the album. But, but yeah, so it is, it's, it's psychedelic soul funk. So funk was, you know, relatively new at this time. I feel like you can trace the genesis of funk to James Brown's 1967 single, Cold Sweat. Uh, well, you, right. know what, you know what this sounds like to me, the album? What? This is a word I learned from you, actually. Uh, cross-faded <laughs> as in like but like under the influence like of on, on on many levels cross-faded do you know what i mean yeah like one can be personally cross-faded like you're fucked you're just fucked up yeah you're on a bunch of different stuff and then 1971 like i, I think i've told you when i draw i've done a, like a, i do a lot of like history mind maps yeah that are not like you know uh a versus b stuff yeah. And the hit my history mind map of the 20th century, which goes right up to now, the hinge of it, the center of it, like when one like when one when chapter one ended and when chapter two began, the very center of it, it yeah. kind of looks like an hourglass. And the center of the hourglass is 1971. Mm. That is. And, I, and, and that is and, and now I'm hearing this album and this guy sounds like. He sounds crossfaded. Like he sounds mm -hmm. like one era is ending and another is beginning. Yeah. And he's like crossfaded between them. Like there was this optimistic, hopeful, mm -hmm. into let's be integrated and like let's you know we can change the world and you know dance the music. And now comes the seventies mm -hmm. and the hot asphalt and shit is falling apart. And yeah. I don't know if I like all these white people around me or my Jewish. By the way, we're both Jews, so we could say this, right? <laughs> I don't know if, like, if I even like these people around me. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's this cross-fadedness. Like, like it's it's one thing is ending, another thing's beginning, and it's both, but it's confusing. Mm -hmm. And it's and it's also disenchanting and, and, and kind of like he's disillusioned with everything. Yeah. I mean, it is a very end of the 60s end kind of, of 60s. statement from an icon of the 60s right uh and after this you know everything is different after this after right. there's a riot going on but you know so i was saying it's it's psychedelic soul it's rock it's funk right and you know one so funk is relatively new and sly and the family stone were you know kind of some uh, the major early architects of funk along with james brown um but you know what they um like the grooves on this album are just so deep yes especially you know you hear the la the last track on the album is called thank you for talking to me africa yeah. which is a re imagining yes. a, a kind of a, an alternate version of their 1969 hit thank you for letting me be myself again slowed way down mm. and with this massive monstrous slap bass drum uh just solid drum beat and 
chicken scratch guitars, double track guitars, just yeah. darting in and out. It's not like like it's fucking sick, but it's it's clearly not designed for consumption the way that it's not like, like part, it's not party music. Are. It's not party music it's in not the same party way music. that, like that it's, dance to the music it's was. Crossfaded music. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's it's not about it's, it's not it's music by and for crossfaded people. <laughs> right. And and like people who are like like you know I'm looking at I'm looking at your records right now. You got Drake right here. Yeah, yeah, I got and Drake. For some reason, Drake it fits take with care it. right next to "There's a Riot" going yeah, on. Yeah, "There's a Riot" going on. You got to tell them about the album cover. I will. I mean, I'll talk we'll, about we'll that. We'll talk about that later. But uh, yeah, so um, you know, it's it's funky, but it's not it's not party music. It's downer music in a lot of ways. Um, right. But uh. Also, though it had, it was massively commercially successful. It was the number one hit uh, album, you know, and a lot of that I think is due to the momentum, you know, of, of Sly's right. career. You know, he I mean he's coming off of the greatest hits album and, and a string of massive singles, massively anticipated. And the first single from "There's a Riot Going On" is "Family Affair," which is, which is by far the best known classic. song in the album. Classic, one of the Maybe greatest of his, songs of all time. Yeah, my, when I think of yeah, Sly. So in the family stone honestly that's the first song i think of yeah and you know a really major thing one of the defining hallmarks of this album is that it uses a lot of drum machines mm. uh a, a primitive you know i say real primitive because it's uh the the particular drum machine that he used on this album is called the maestro rhythm king and this was one of the earliest commercially available drum machines that you could buy at the time so and this is like the first time a, a, a major hit single is using yeah fam family family affair as far as i know is the first number one single in the u.s to use a drum machine we we, we got to listen to this right now let's play it Somebody that just loves to learn and another child grows up to be somebody you just love to burn. Mom loves the best. Yeah. It's the best. Yeah, yeah. It's this it, this song, look, I I, I don't know as much as, as Archie knows about this stuff, but mm -hmm. this song, like when you say this is your one album, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, what? But then I hear that song, and I'm mm -hmm. like, yeah, that sounds yeah. right. I mean, everything just... I don't... Like, that's that's timeless. Yeah, I it's, mean... Every time you hear it, it's like... It's it's, it's like better than Billie Jean. It's just... <laughs> like, it hits right every time. Yeah, I 100%, 1,000% agree. But, you know, sonically, 
you know, one of the reasons I love this album so much is, is, I mean, of the many reasons is the way it sounds. And that's goes, you know, the instrumentation. So, you know, a lot of the songs combine the drum machine with live drums. And I think that, I think Family Affair uh, is one of those. Some of the songs are just drum machine. You said drum machine with live drums. Correct. Cool. I think so. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, you've got wow. electric, electric keyboards, you know, from that era, you've got the, uh, Fender, you know, Fender Rhodes electric piano. You've got the clavin, Honer clavinet. It's crossfaded. Um, it's so many different kinds of things mm-hmm. mixed together, but so, so, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like synchronistically, harmoniously, yeah, like it just fits somehow. Right. Uh, no, everything fits together. No, there's, uh, yeah, it's it's lightning in a bottle. Everything's just perfect the way it is, even though it has sort of a superficially imperfect sound and kind of rough and right. and with this uh, which, you know, which haze adds over even everything. more exactly. And um, and also, you know, his his vocal performances are absolutely incredible. Right. You know, there's. And almost sort it's of, they're unhin- yeah, and they're sort of unhinged in a way, and sort of, you know, like kind of off off the wall yeah. a little bit, but in a in a way that's kind of subdued. You know, I mean, it sounds it's believe I believe it that he recorded some of these uh, tracks, vocal tracks, like reclining Super in his bed. But Super also, yeah. uh, what's the acronym? I D G A F. Yeah, it There's is. There's a very I don't give a fuck quality to this album. Yeah, yeah. Uh, while whilst being genius, exactly, and that's and that's the epitome of cool, isn't it? Where I, yeah, I guess it is to seem like you're you're. It sounds effortless. Yeah, it sounds effortless. But the, but but and 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 it does also sound rough if we if we mm-hmm. can be honest. Yeah. Oh, it was, it, it, like this is a messy sounding album. Yeah. Exactly. But when you get that, when Family Affair hits, if mm-hmm. you don't fucking, if you don't feel that, yeah. you're not a person. <laughs> like that is it. Like like, I gotta say this again. I, uh, I'm uh, he Archie knows way more about music than me. But but I told when, when when Family Affair comes on, I totally get what he's talking about. This that song is that is an island. You that is a take to an owl island and be deserted on the island song. Mm-hmm. It's perfect and it's always good and it's timeless and it's hard to when you hear it. It's hard to think of something better than it. You know what I mean? I'm I'm totally with you, and I am. It makes me so happy wow, to hear wow, you say wow. that. I mean, it sounds like fuck. It sounds like being like like born into the. It, like it sounds like a water birth or something. Yeah, yeah, and you know the the aesthetic of s- kind of psychedelic soul with drum primitive drum machine. Right. You know, I that is one of my favorite sounds wow. in the world, wow. Wow. and there actually you know there was there's a compilation by you know numero group uh or they're they're this 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 record label i think they're based in chicago um but they've been around for over a decade now releasing a lot of basically they just find obscure music that you know maybe came out a long time ago and didn't go anywhere or wasn't released at all and they kind of give it they make these uh, lavishly produced reissues 
to kind of give this music a second chance. They, and they have a series called Eccentric Soul, where they find, you know, like regional soul music from, from the past that, that, you know, didn't really go anywhere. But they, they put out a compilation in 2012 called um, <clears throat> Personal Space, Electronic Soul from, I think it's like 1970, I forgot the year range, but it's like from the 70s to the, to the mid 80s. And that, uh, that collects a lot of other music that was around the same time that didn't go anywhere commercially, but kind of sounds a little bit like there's a riot going on at times. So if you're looking for somewhere to go after this, other than other Sly and the Family Stone albums, check out that compilation, Personal Space. Personal Space. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But to get back to Sly... Um, you know, I can I ask I'm you a question about this song because this, this is like my favorite song yeah. of all time. Yeah, Family Affair. Yes, yes. I've to, said to the me, same thing. To I, me, Family Affair is is like okay. Like if I'm at a bar, I'll put on Billie Jean. The reason mm-hmm. I put it on Billie Jean is because it's everyone loves perfect Jean. song, but everyone loves it. Yeah. But if it, but if it was like just my friends in the bar, I'm gonna put on Family Affair. Yeah. For my family, if you know what I mean, I like, feel and, you. and it's like I'm not saying. What I'm trying to say is, to me, Family Affair is like top three songs ever made. It, uh, yeah, it's as it good as it gets. And I, I have hits said right. that there are, there was, I have, that was, I'm sorry, um, that has been my favorite. It might still be my favorite song wow. of all I time. Mean, there yeah. are a couple other contenders creeping in, but. Uh, yeah, I'm totally with you, man. It's as good as it gets. It's it really is. It's as good as it gets. And it's, it's like, and when you're there, when you're listening to it, it's hard to imagine something better. I've always wanted to know who are the two, uh, 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 you know, one grows up to be someone that just loves to burn, mm-hmm. and one just grows up to be someone who just loves to learn. Mm-hmm. You know, having heard your description, or Sly's description, and also this other guy and. Yeah, you know that there's a sly and a, and a Sylvester. Sylvester. Mm-hmm. Is he talking about the two sides of himself, or is he actually talking about two literal brothers? He he might. I mean, it's unclear. There's it's ambiguous and kind of a lot of you know a lot of the lyrics on the album are, you know, and not super legible or like audible. I guess mm-hmm. there is a lyric. It did come with a lyric sheet. This is like the original D'Angelo voodoo. Yeah, totally. Well, right? yeah. Like uh, it's hard to imagine. Like voodoo can't exist without this. No, I mean it's it's kind of maybe the first auteur, um, soul album. Right. You know, and and sort of, you know, I, I'd say Prince owes a great deal uh, to to it, and right. D'Angelo, of course. I mean. There's a there was a song I was telling you earlier but on the last D'Angelo album Black Messiah mm. called One Thousand Deaths, yes. which <clears throat> is uh, it's clearly a direct homage clearly. to the sound of There's a Riot Going On, and I think they did a great job in in approximating it. That's probably um, about as as close as anyone has come. Maybe we should listen to to D'Angelo's version. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, 
Yeah, so, so I think be... uh, D'Angelo and his collaborators, they they came pretty close, I think, to capturing the sound of There's a Riot Going On. But, of course, there is only, there is only one There's a Riot Going On. Uh, and, I mean, needless to say, if you're listening to this and you haven't heard this album, just immediately listen to it now <laughs> you won't be disappointed i just wanted to talk about a couple other songs uh in in detail um but i won't you know i won't go through every track obviously um but for me kind of the heart of the album is on side two uh the second and third tracks on side two of the original vinyl record and this if you can find it on vinyl it sounds absolutely incredible the the Yes, it does. The original 1971 pressing. Um, and it's not too hard to come by, not that expensive on, on like Discogs. So highly recommended you seek that out. <coughs> um, but it's also, it's on Spotify, all the, all the streaming platforms. Um, but the second track on side two is called Time. Time. And you heard um, an excerpt of that at the very top of the show. Um, and it's sort of a, s a slow um, shuffle, uh, sort of in, in si 6-8 time signature, but that's basically just like a shuffle, and it's using, using the Maestro Rhythm King drum machine, and, um, and it's got an electric organ, and the whole, it just has this sort of spacey, ethereal vibe, and um you know sly gives you know it's all over this record but he's he gives this just um kind of it, impassioned but also uh you know laid back and and apathetic sounding slightly vocal performance um that's just it it's it's just audio nirvana i mean there's nothing Nothing more to say, really, except I just wanted to highlight that track because it's sort of like the slowest song in the album, mm. and um, but it just really it just takes me to another place to a to a spaceship of sorts, um, a spaceship of the mind. Let's listen to this spaceship of the mind. Time by Sly and the Family Stone. Time. Me. Another minute at least. Take your time, but you gotta let me know. That girl looks forward to another meeting. What are the lyrics to this song? It almost sounds like he's just improvising time needs another minute take your time at least take your time but you've got a limit yeah that girl looks forward to another meeting just like everyday people i know look forward to another simple greeting a bear a bear in the woods looks forward to hibernating just any old player you know you are high all he needs is a rating. This is a high man. Time is education, even when they tell you it's sophistication. Oh, you know that time needs to be a little longer. 
Oh, time. The universe needs to be a little stronger. Dude. Time, they say, is the answer, huh? I'll tell I don't you, believe I'll it. tell you what's happening right now in this time. I'll tell you what's happening. Uh-huh. It's very clear. The man is becoming based. <laughs> He's becoming based. And he was. Look, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying he was. Look, what do you mean by based? We all know what we mean Thank by. Thank you, based God. Look, based. Well, there's the based God. But, that, but now it's taking on a new meaning, which is the there's cringe and there's based. The thank, dichotomy. Thank you to the Gen Z this is Zoomers. The, this is the 4chan uh, uh, framework of but based it, versus but cringe. But, you know, look, maybe they coined this stupid sh- nonsense. Yeah. But it does, It like, it makes sense, especially now to us yeah. after living through the Trump years. Because mm-hmm. all our, like, lib, you know, all our lib friends, of which we were were them also mm-hmm. i mean i was against trump i went to an anti-trump protest at the airport when he yeah. first did the fucking muslim man yeah. it was, it's horrifying yeah so did i but you know over time you know this whole based cringe dialectic emerged mm-hmm. you know whether or not you agree with it or not it's there and it sounds like what happened to sly is that he was a genius throughout. Mm-hmm. It's not like he, you know, one part is a genius and one's not. No, it's all I mean, genius. Crazy music before there's a riot all, going on. It's, it's all genius, but from the point of view or framework or the, if you're in standing in 1971, mm-hmm. and Martin Luther King is dead, and Fred Hampton is dead, mm-hmm. and the fucking world and the country's breaking down and we're still in vietnam and you look back at all this hopeful stuff you start to cringe a little bit right Mm -hmm. because you're like why you see what i'm saying yeah no i'm putting myself i I guess i'm I'm imagining myself yeah this mindset that sort of um you know it's a it's naive optimism right really in that scene you know which is kind of beautiful in a way for that time yeah you can see him starting to go Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Fuck that. Yeah. And and that's yeah. him becoming base. Yeah, he's yes, exactly. You know, it's it's and it is sort of veering in a you know, in a, in a dark dark nihilistic, nihilistic direction, direction yes. but I think that's a more real but representation of what was sense. happening in the world. Yeah. And everyone's going in that direction yep. because everyone has just seen Altamont mm-hmm. and the Manson murders and which by the way is like, you know, I mean that's not a, that's not everything. It's also the Vietnam. It's everything. Yeah. But everyone is becoming disillusioned with flower power. Mm-hmm. We can do it. We hopeful optimism. Everyone's going like, you know what? Actually, the world sucks, mm-hmm. and we lost. Yep. I mean that's what's really happening politically at this time. Is the left has been defeated. Right. You know, yep. and and there was a chance at that late 60s time that it could win mm-hmm. and it didn't it yep. didn't they lost and they know they've lost yeah and it's and after you know you've lost you know how can you how can you how can you make dance to the music after you've no, lost you you can't and you know i mean it's it's a reflection of i guess both what he was struggling with personally mm. you know and dealing with with this fame and, and record company pressure and drugs and black panther 
trying to you know make him their their uh their puppet or whatever um but also it's reflect it reflects what was happening broadly in right. society at the time too it's a perfect soundtrack to that yeah i mean now we've entered the 70s mm-hmm. now we've entered french connection parallax view the conversation watergate mm-hmm. we've left hope behind yep we're now we're in disillusionment disenchantment hope, all ye who who dare to enter <laughs> wait what, what was his deal with the black pa- like what was that I don't, what was their yeah i mean i did don't he not like them did they have a falling no, out with them no i don't think i think they just really wanted him to advocate mm. to be like an advocate for them or some sort of you know like the artistic uh represent uh, like front yeah you know ma- uh not figurehead or whatever for for what they were doing i don't think he was i think he was like definitely sympathetic to to them and like what they were trying to accomplish but he also just didn't want he just didn't want to be to anyone's be pre- uh yeah he just wanted to make make his post brilliant boy. music yeah. yeah whether um, it's for the hopeful integrated crowd or the whatever mm-hmm. crowd yeah exactly T- um, can tell us more about the conceptual art on this album before i do that i just wanted to talk about one other song in the album real quick called spaced cowboy oh shit because right. this is a uh, right. there's time and then this is comes right after it on the album side two and this is uh so on paper this song sounds like absolutely bonkers and like it wouldn't work it's a psychedelic i would describe it as a psychedelic country soul song with um yodeling, yodeling in right. the chorus and um and it's got got that maestro rhythm king again it's the, the drum machine so we're talking about electronic psychedelic country soul with yodeling <laughs> and it's the, it's the original old town road <laughs> you could look at it like that yeah right. i mean he country wasn't his thing but it's you uh know, he, what do they call that the um the yee yee, what was it called? Oh, yeah, yeehaw. Yeehaw. Um, yeah, it's the yeehaw movement. Movement. Um, but the 1971 version of that, and right. um, but it's just a testament to his genius that he actually pulls it off, and it is a delightful and um, just it's just a great it's a great song. Let's listen to a little bit of it. That's Spaced Cowboy. That's about as far out as, as it gets on this album. But, I love that. Um, yeah, I love it, too. I love it so much. Um, but you had asked about, so kind of the, the conceptual... Well, okay. First, I just wanted to mention, I forgot to mention this before, but the album's called There's a Riot Going On, and it was called that, Sly Stone called it that, uh, specifically in response to 
Marvin Gaye's album What's Going On, mm. which came out earlier in 1971, right. and which is another. Wow. I mean, that was sort of I, I both I, 1971. Yeah, and that's you know, obviously an, an all-time classic soul album. And I kind of I think earlier I referred to There's a Riot Going On, going on as like the first auteur soul like state soul R&B statement as an album and I guess there uh, what's going on might actually qualify as yeah, the I first one but but I, I guess there's a riot going on takes it further in the sense that Sly plays most of the instruments himself so it's closer you're it's more on the continuum you know whereas like on what's going on um you know, it's not it's not Marvin Gaye playing every instrument. Mm. Uh, so we're fully in. We're like in like to yeah, total yeah, total like mind. one man. You know, one of those one man records, sort of in 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 that kind of in went on, carried on and like as yeah. by Prince and Todd right. Rundgren right. and you know those those uh, studio wizards who who played every instrument. It's almost like uh, I mean to me, to be honest, nineteen seventy. I told you before, 1971 to me is the hinge moment. And now you have these two albums. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've always been much more familiar with what, what's going on because I'm a big Marvin Gaye oh, yeah. fan. Uh, but you have these two, like, 60, you know, Sly is this, like, I mean, he's more like a hippie kind of guy. Yeah. But he's still very optimistic, right? Right. And then Marvin is wearing a tux, mm-hmm. and he's this kind of Motown guy. Suave, motherfucker. Suave. He's, like, kind of... um. Nat King Cole, but for the 60s. Mm. And you take these two guys, and now it's 1971, and they're both saying, uh, something's fucked up here. Exactly. Marvin says, what's going on? Right. And this and guy's And he digs saying, into it on the album, obviously. Uh, yeah. You know, talking about... It's almost like the Michael Jackson Prince tradition. That <laughs> dialectic. Yeah. Of the... Where they're both geniuses. Yeah. You but one is like this kind of musician genius who mm-hmm. plays everything. Yep. The, the other is this kind of art entertainer genius. Exactly. That yeah, kind of I starts never even thought here about it in like 1971. That. Yeah. You know, I've no, I never thought about it like that, but that's right. There's the muso genius versus like the entertainer genius. But and they're, they're both you know, geniuses. They're both genius. They're of both and, and auteurs and, and, yeah. and design, you know, writers and kind of the, the, creative geniuses of their right. respective works but um but there's a bit of a more i don't give a fuck aspect to the princes and slides mm-hmm, exactly and there's a and bit more, more accent- of a polishedness yeah even in their you know even in their messiness there's a polishedness yes to michael and marvin right right is uh, it that would you i mean I've actually no, just, i actually i've never thought no, about that actually, but there's kind uh, of a i think that's a good comparison i mean it yeah. does you know it doesn't map like one to one but i think the perception of you know, Michael Jackson. I mean, I, I was like Michael Jackson and Prince are were very both different, extreme, very different, but also extremely eccentric. Yes, in their own respective their own ways. ways. But one guy wears a tux. That's what I'm exactly. saying. Exactly, Michael, and ja- Michael, Michael wear in the tuxes. tux, and everything is super polished. Right. And you know, Prince albums are polished too, but he actually wasn't as concerned about making sure every single note was in in the right place. And and everything sounded, you know, super smooth. Like, you know, you hear I I saw an interview with his one of his uh, engineers, Susan Rogers, you know, who was like the engineer, engineer, Prince's engineer in the mid 80s for like, 
most of his classic albums from that era. And, and you know, she's talking about the ballad of Dorothy Parker from Sign of the Times. Like they were record, you know, they yeah. like recorded most of the tracks, but it turned out something, some setting or something wasn't like connected properly in the mixing board, which which, you know, made. Basically, it could have sounded more polished than it was. Yeah. And Susan Rogers like pointed this out to Prince, you know, after they had already recorded most of it. And she's like, well, it's it's just, it's going to it's not going to sound, you know, it's not going to sound as, you know, it's going to sound off in some way. I forgot right. exactly what, but, but he warped. was like, he was like, well, well, we don't want to sound like everyone else. Right. <laughs> right. We like, him, you know, so. Right. So he wasn't. He's willing. To, he's willing to bend it. Exactly. I needed someone. Yeah, you know what? Ballad of Dorothy. I I once uh, to me, Family Affair is like the best. Mm -hmm. But like, I could see. Does this, this sound crazy? But I feel like Ballad of Dorothy Parker is like a. It's the child of Family Affair somehow. Like well, there, it, it there's somehow a con. There's a yeah. I think it's a, there's a tradition that's being passed down. It's of kind like, of the way they're sung because they're they're both in both of those songs. It's like not. They're just sort of weird. <laughs> they're weird, and it's almost like talk singing. Yeah, you know, uh, it's like bathtub music. Yeah, it's like one child grows up to be somebody just loved. You know, it's like yeah. and, they, and they, it's like packing, and they're very wordy, right. and it's all and they're yeah they're set to music, but it's all they're almost like monologues and it also and here's something that sly and prince have in common is that they're both geniuses i feel like at this point once he's become based mm -hmm. doesn't care if you think he's a genius no he, he doesn't he's not doing it for you anymore in a yeah. way that michael michael was always and i feel like marvin was sort of they're in the same tradition which is they're entertainers not, it's not to mm -hmm. say they're not geniuses when they're making a product that is they're like, to be this like product mass, must be have polished yeah. because that is my job as the like it's my job it's my duty to make a pro polished mm -hmm. product for you yeah and sly and prince if the final product was is not you know quote unquote polished it's but like, it but it. it's but it's no but one it's true no one could ever argue that it's not a virtual virtuosic work of genius yeah despite its lack of polish um yeah absolutely that's that's i I like that. That's that's uh, that's genius. But <laughs> so but okay, so to to wrap to wrap this up, I just wanted to end by talking about what I view as the conceptual art elements mm -hmm. of this album because yes. I do think on on one level it's it's a work of conceptual art. And that I think comes through most prominently in the cover art uh, and one of the songs one of the songs in the album so the cover i'll talk about the cover art first so the cover of this album is it's basically it's it's an image of a modified american flag and um and it's got the red and white bars as on the standard american flag um, but instead of a blue field 
uh, in the upper left hand corner it's black mm. and instead of stars um, they are they're like these multi uh, pointed suns and I will I'll acknowledge that the sun is a star but it's the su- it's I, I'm gonna re- so I'll read a quote from Sly Stone explaining um, the the cover like what it represents because it was his you know it was totally his idea um but okay so in an interview with jonathan dax stone explained the album covers concept stating i wanted the flag to truly represent people of all colors i wanted the color black because it is the absence of color i wanted the color white because it is the combination of all colors and i wanted the color red because it represents the one thing that all people have in common blood I wanted suns instead of stars, because stars to me imply searching, like you search for your star. And there are already too many stars in this world. But the sun, that's something that is always there, looking at, looking right at you. Betsy Ross did the best she could with what she had. I thought I could do better. Mm. Yeah, so... It's about about America. Yeah. Sort of. It's about America, but it's also about kind of like a... Univer- a statement of, of uh, the the how the human race is all how we're all united mm. and unified by common uh, like it it's sort of that you know the way he explains it it sounds like you know more of an optimistic sim- symbolic message mm. more in line with his earlier music right that's still there in him yeah right well, and, t- and tell us about um. The, yeah, this the other mysterious track. Right. Album. The other. Okay. So, the other kind of conceptual art statement is so there's a title track on the album, meaning a song called "There's a Riot Going On," that is listed uh, uh, on the track list as the last song on side one of the vinyl LP, and this track has a running time of zero minutes and zero seconds. It doesn't exist. Well, it does exist, but it it has no duration. This is, it's fu- <laughs> this is fucking um, right? metaphysical. It's getting, I mean, it's getting into like John Cage, four so minutes, wait, so 33 you're saying seconds. There's a groove on this album for that track, and then it just, it, and then it just I mean, goes I, to the next one? Well, it doesn't go any because it's the last song on this on the album side. So it's basically you know the 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 fifth is, track. Is there a Africa. physical manifestation of this track, or does it exist only? I think it in exists only in the only in the mind. Really, there's nothing. I mean, because no, it's not. I don't think there's any physical evidence of it on the record. You know, the song before it, Africa talks to you, the the asphalt jungle, which is this kind of like seven minute. Um, like extended funk jam um and then the title track which has no duration uh the ti- the t- right the title of the album is there's a riot going on mm-hmm. and then the title track which typically is a pretty big song on an album if it, the right. album is called that yeah usually if the if the song is the same name as the album that's you know a, that's that kind a big of, one that's kind of endowed by making that decision right. the artist has endowed that song with the an, an impliedly 
greater great you know significance, significance for some reason and on this one there is a title track yeah. with the same name as the album there's mm-hmm. a right going on yeah and it is at the end of the first side and it is zero minutes i, I will say that on, on the latest cd reissue of this album which has like a few bonus tra- like tracks of instrumental outtakes recorded at the sessions there is a track on the cd so it's track six and it's zero seconds or however yeah. short they can make a, a track on the cd but i will say that the I think like the first CD issue of this album, like when they were first putting out CDs in the mid to late 80s, you know, and reissuing all the old albums on CDs, because I had that, that was my first, I got this album in, in like ninth grade on, and it was that old CD, which was a horribly done by the way. And they didn't use the original cover. They used like, like it was like a photo of Sly in concert with this shitty border. But so they, they did, the, the later CD reissue was more well done. But on that first CD, there was no, like, track six, it just went to Brave and Strong, which is the first track on side B. So mm. they didn't, you know, respect his his, cons- uh, his wishes. Yeah. His vision is he wants a track mm-hmm. on his album that's called There's a Ride Going On, and he wants there to be a track called There's a Ride Going On, yep. and he wants it to be zero minutes, zero seconds. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, that's a great question. Um, and He's making a statement here a, of some yeah, kind. Yeah, definitely. And I will say, so a lot of people at the time thought that this referred to um, an incident mm. at, at, that happened at a Sly and the Family Stone concert in Chicago um, in July of 1970, where um, there was a, ri- like a, a riot and ended up like the basically the band took a long time like slide just the show was delayed a lot he was being sly he was being sly not sylvester not sylvester he was being sly at the time and uh the crowd got restless and there was a riot and um there were you know over a hundred people were injured and so you know that was kind of a, a disaster for them so i guess a lot of people thought that it might have something to do with that at the time but um apparently in 1997 sly was asked about it in an interview um and he wanted the track to to have no running time because quote i felt there should be no riots Mm. yeah and Mm. i think that Mm. it kind of that aligns pretty well with the vibe of that the uh, the sort of detached nihilistic right vibe of, i mean maybe not nihilistic is, is the ro- wrong word but sort of what's well, yeah you know he just it's like everything is everything is is dark and going to shit and i just i want there to be no riots right and and the album you know that kind of connects to the cover his uh, his concept for the cover too where um you know where it's it's a symbol of of what unites right um, everybody he has these two sides mm-hmm. sly and sylvester mm-hmm. and he's also standing astride you know the 60s and the 70s and there was this hopeful stuff before and now we're getting into this darker Mm -hmm. more pessimistic stuff but when he says i want there to be no riots it's like somehow it's 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 integrating both sides yeah right 
He doesn't want it makes the, the the hopeful guy doesn't want there to be riots, but also this nihilistic exhausted guy doesn't want there to be riots either. Right. No no riots is a It's like it's what a, the fuck is the point of this shit? Right. Why is a, everyone burning stuff? Yeah. Um you know, yes, I'm more based now. And I probably wouldn't make the same music I used to mm-hmm. because I'm a little bit disillusioned and disenchanted mm-hmm. and disappointed. Yeah. Why are, we, why are we burning everything? No. It's a, it's yeah, exactly. It's the exhausted, disillusioned way, uh, guy's way of saying, why can't we all just get along? Yeah. In a really, you know, crypt, in a very crypt, tired way. In a very tired and cryptic, cryptic. Uh, way. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's not going out there with a the peace sign anymore. No. He's going. He's he's trying to say. You know, like, like, I don't know. You tell yeah. me. What is he trying to say? He's trying to say, why can't we all just get along? Right. No right. But he's now he's just a little bit more based. Yeah. And a little bit more exhausted. Yes. And that's a cooler way to say it. Right. Than. And he's saying it what in a silent song. Yep. That's yes. Cool. It's a silent yeah, it's like a form of protest in a way. Right. Um, yeah, very, very, uh, very enigmatic. Right. And, you know, so that just those, just the cover, that that song sort of, you know, just adds adds to the already abundant <laughs> mystery, mystery. Era, aura of mystery. It's a mystery. I mean, it's a song that's not a song. It's a mystery at the heart of this album. Yeah. yeah. Why make a zero minute zero second song that is the title of your album mm-hmm. yeah and we're been we we're like devoting more time to, to it than, than any, any of the, of the music <laughs> but but it's clearly extremely significant yeah you know definitely so i would have you know of all the people who had takes about last year and mm-hmm. I, by the way i know nobody wants to fucking talk about it last year yeah nobody wants to fucking talk no one wants to think about it mm-hmm. because it was painful (laughs) yeah it was painful and it was and it was edgy and it was unpredictable and it was somewhat scary and it was had had many different you know there was fucking like nazis marching in the street yeah troubled times it was troubled times last year but i would love to hear what this dude would think about that shit yeah well he's alive today um you know i i think his his days of creative musical genius production are are way behind him and i guess just kind of a, to quickly wrap it up you know uh, after so you know there's a riot going on it was it was commercially successful it was a number one album on the billboard charts family affair was a number one single um so you know it did really well but at the same time it was and it was crit- you know critically acclaimed it's is widely regarded as one of the greatest albums of all time um but you know it wasn't it was definitely in in, to, in some ways re- with regard to its commercial success sort of riding the momentum of the hits you know the the more palatable hmm. to the masses hits that he had scored in like 68 and 69 and 70 hmm. Um, and then after, so his follow-up to There's a Riot Going On, uh, came in 1973. That album's called Fresh, Mm. and it is great. A lot of people love that album, Mm. and 
and it's that has if you want me that to has stay. if you want me to stay which is you know it was one of his his most well-known biggest hits we could yeah we should play right now if you want me to stay i'll be around today to be available for you to see i'm about to go and then you'll know for me to stay i got to be me Yeah, so so fresh, uh, great album, super funky, um, and it you got if if you want me to stay, um, and uh, another really great track from that is is their cover of "Que Sera Sera," the Doris Day old Doris Day song, um, which was used in the um, end credits of the film Heather's, notably, but. Um, you know, so fresh is great, but it's just not. It doesn't have that, you know, glowing, murk, murky genius, um, darkness vibes of. There's a riot going on. You know that album is just a once. Like it, 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 it happened once, and it will never happen again. And you know, after fresh. Um, there were a couple more you put out a couple more albums in the 70s which were you know all right they're uh, not um very well regarded but they're maybe better than some critics have said you know they were kind of tough on them in in relation to his previous you know earlier masterpieces and they were commercial flops at the same time and then after that sly kind of just went off the map you know, he kind of made a comeback attempt in the early 80s. Um, I think he collaborated with George Clinton of Parliament Funkadelic at some point. But um, yeah, and, and you know, he'll emerge once every decade or so. You know, there was like a tribute to him at the Grammy Awards or something like that. You know, that happens once in a while. Um, but, you know, he's pretty much his his days of of making genius music are, are long gone but we are very blessed to um to have what we have from him and that he was able to make those those albums and this album in particular which as i said may be my favorite album of all time yes and it's happening in 1971 yes which is exactly where we're going to pick up with our next episode. Who is the Gaucho? Amigo. And the origin of Team A versus Team B. Yes. So if you if you hear what we've been talking about and you're you're wondering, wait, you know, you hear what Bur Burko's theories and you think, well, who's, wait, who's Team A? Who's Team B? What is the... I'm I'm with you on that and All Stars 1971. Same year as this album. Yeah. This is the year that the world broke. Literally. Like the world broke this year. And he's the reason it sounds fucking crossfaded is because he's standing at the crossfaded 
point of fucking history. At the crossroads. He's standing at the crossroads and he's feeling crossfaded because he's like the world is being crossfaded at this point. And he's being crossfaded personally. And mm-hmm. that is what this album sounds like. That's mm-hmm. why this album could never be made again. It could never be made before. Like, even if Sly is uh, still the genius after, like, this is, like, to me, I don't know, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not fucking historical materialist. Like, mm-hmm. he's standing at the fucking X. X mm-hmm. marks the spot. And, of course, lightning is going to be captured in a bottle at this time, 1971, because that that's the moment. Anyway, you'll hear all about it next week. Though. 71. Yep, next week yes. or next whenever we whenever we drop it. Right. Steely I'm going to talk about Steely Dan's 1981 masterpiece Gaucho. Yes. And Burko is going to lay out the history of the struggle, not struggle. I don't know what word I'm looking for, but the divergence. The divergence and um, the, the the saga the of, saga of the entities which he has <laughs> christened Team A and Team B. Yes, yes. Tune in next week, friends. Later. Running away to get away. Ha 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 ha. You're wearing out your shoes. Stretching out your dude.